You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 157 of the Common Descent Podcast. Today, we are discussing bioluminescence and biofluorescence. This should be illuminating. Yes. We're going to talk about things that glow. Glowing creatures. Creatures. Critters, organisms, actually. Yeah, all sorts of life. So, these are two different ways that life can glow, and they are distinctly different, even though at at a glance, literally, they might look similar, (laughs) but they are different, but they have a myriad of uses and are found just across life. So we'll discuss what they are, you know, what does it mean to luminesce or fluoresce, what organisms do it and what do they use it for, Mm -hmm. and then a little bit about what do we know about how things started to glow. Yeah, the evolutionary insights into this phenomenon. Absolutely. This is a massive topic where we could have zoomed in on pretty much any group of life. Sure, and we've chosen not to. (laughs) Yep, (laughs) like we could have just picked a group of life and go, all right, we will only discuss it within this, and that would have given us enough. Right. But we will be doing an overview. So absolutely, if if we miss your favorite glowing critter, (laughs) let let us us know. know. Send us a message. (laughs) Now, we will be discussing this because... It was requested a bunch. Yeah, a lot of people wanted this topic. Oh, yeah. We got requests from Susan, Kelly, Kieran, Jennifer, David, Milu, Jackie, Cobb, Universe Traveler, and Serpentine. Thanks, everybody. Yes. This was a ton of fun, so I hope you all enjoy. Hope you enjoy. Hopefully, we can shed some light on this topic. <laughs> Maybe I'll do that for the whole episode. <laughs> I haven't decided yet. <laughs> Strap in, everybody. <laughs> Get ready. This is the mood I'm in. I'm a dad today. (laughs) (laughs) It's a dad kind of day. Now, before we get into the episode, some quick announcements. First and foremost, we have a Patreon. We still do. And as is now a episode-to-episode tradition, we like to shout the names out for certain of the people who support us on Patreon at certain levels. Today's new patrons are Francis and Brent. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for your support. Thank you... To all the support of our patrons. Absolutely. We hope that these new patrons have been enjoying the goodies that our patrons get on Patreon. Bonus news, after chat, director's notes, uh, live streams, all sorts of bonus content. Absolutely. So this is a great way to get more content from us, to get in contact with us and be able to ask us questions on the regular. While also supporting our science education efforts. And if you'd like to support us other ways, we have Tons of links down in the description. Oh, yeah. Social media, physical mailing address, email, Discord, the list goes on. Also, you'll find a link to our Audible affiliate program, where if you use that link, you can get a month free on Audible and support us here on the podcast. Yeah. I think I mentioned last time that I was going to listen to an audiobook about Marvel comics, and Mm -hmm. I did, and it was great. And then I listened to another book about comic book superheroes, and it was great. (laughs) So Audible's got all sorts of cool stuff. And our last bit of news is that the week after this episode comes out... On the 28th will be our sixth anniversary. Yeah, our first episode of the podcast was released for the first time online on YouTube on January 28th, 2017. Six years. Yes. We don't have like a big celebration planned this year like we did last year for five, uh, which was a big milestone. But we'll make some posts about it. We'll, We'll share some things about it. Maybe keep your eyes out. 
Yeah, so thank you all for being with us for our sixth anniversary. And for all of you who have been here for all of those six years, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Yeah, that's how we should celebrate is by telling, if you have been listening to the podcast for a while, this is a great time to send us messages, get in the Discord, get in the social media. Tell us when you started. Have you been listening the whole time? Have the you whole time? To every episode? Did you just start? This is a great time of the, the year for us to get like a... a sense of yeah well what's the uh, what's the status of our community how's y'all doing how's everyone doing (laughs) (laughs) but for now we will wrap up our announcements and move on to the first official section of the episode the news every episode we gather up some recent scientific news from paleontology evolutionary biology just fossil history etc etc helps us all stay up to date on what's going on in the scientific world David, what's new? I have some news from the Gray Fossil Site. Oh, hey! Uh, specifically, a new species from the Gray Fossil Site. Even more specifically, turtles. Ooh, nice. This is research by Stephen Jasinski. We know that guy. Yes, we do. Uh, he was on one of our live chats when we talked about turtles. Steve uh, Steve and I were roommates in grad school. Steve and I go way back. Stephen Jasinski in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society. And on our blog post, where we have links to the news... We will link to the press release about this study that is on etmnh.org, which is the website of the Gray Fossil Site and Museum. That release was written by me, because that's where I work. (laughs) And boy, it makes it really nice to study the news for the episode. You cheater. Yeah, that's right. Um, Double dipping. As we have discussed many times on the podcast, the Gray Fossil Site is a 5 million year old early Pliocene fossil locality here in East Tennessee, under the jurisdiction of East Tennessee State University, where Will and I both did our master's program. The Gray Fossil Site represents an ancient pond surrounded by forest, and the fossils that have been found there include tapirs and mastodons and rhinos and alligators and red pandas, and about 200 different ancient plants, animals, fungi, and algae, from a time period that is almost completely unrepresented in the eastern United States. Yeah. Basically, everything we find at Gray is news some way or another, because there is no other fossil site of this age in this region. Which explains why we got so many new species. So many new species (laughs) of the animals that are found at the Gray fossil site. Among the most common are turtles. Yep, yep. There are, I think, nine now different types of turtles identified at Gray. Box turtles, snapping turtles, slider turtles... Uh, tortoises. We recently got our first ever evidence of softshell turtles. There's a bunch. That's, it's Which is just delightful. This study is about our painted turtles, chrysomenes. Painted turtles are still around in this area today. They are, in fact, very abundant across North America. Chrysomenes picta specifically is the, the more common species. At Gray, we've got several shells. I think we've got uh, not quite a dozen different chrysomenes shells. Like, nicely complete shells, plus bits and pieces of tails and legs and skulls and things like that. This study is the first to officially describe in detail and identify the species of our painted turtles. And indeed, they are new. This species is Chrysomys corniculata, which translates to, and and Steve put the common name in the paper, the horned painted turtle. Ooh. Now... We will clarify what that means. Um, (laughs) This species is distinguished from other species by minute features on the shell and in the skull bones. Features that make it distinct from other known species. The name Horned Painted Turtle 
refers to two little pointy projections on the front edge of the carapace, the top of the shell. Gotcha, gotcha. So in life, above the neck of the turtle, where the neck comes out of the shell, there would be these two little pointy bits. Yes. We see things like this in modern turtles. Modern painted turtles will sometimes have features like this. They are used as mating display. They're also apparently, uh, it sounds like, used sometimes to poke each other. Yeah. As like mating encouragement. Yeah. Um, which is an, a much better word than coercion, which is the <laughs> word that is more often used. Uh, Steve referred to them, when I was talking to him, he referred to them as uh, mating weaponry. Yes. Which I don't like that phrase. That is, <laughs> that's not great. Uh, here in this fossil species, those horns seem to be present on both males and females. All right. Although they appear to be larger in the males. And they give it this nice little, they, you know, they're horns. When you look real close, you can see, oh, yeah, those do look like little horns. Yes. But uh, as other people have been pointing out, this is the second species that Steve has named from the gray fossil site that has a name that means something slightly misleading. Yes, the, the, uh, the news might the, run away the with. The winged snake <laughs> and the horned turtle. Now, in Steve's defense, I came up with the name for the winged snake, so that wasn't... <laughs> He and I were he and I did that one together. That one was my fault. Listen, uh, you two. <laughs> we want the news. We want publicity. There's no such thing as bad publicity, they say. The paper itself uh, compares this turtle to a bunch of other related species. There's a bunch of discussion about turtle evolution. So where Chrysomys falls with painted turtles in relation to other turtles on the evolutionary tree. There's discussion of the diversification of turtles over time. So Chrysomys belongs to a group of turtles that has become more diverse over the last several million years. And like I mentioned, painted turtles are extremely widespread in North America today. But there are two points of comparison with modern painted turtles that I find just particularly interesting. Mm-hmm. First is that modern painted turtles, Chrysomys picta, the widespread species, prefer cooler habitats. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve tells me they don't get down to Florida. I right, don't right. like it all that warm, but the gray fossil site is Florida, Georgia kind of habitat. Back in the day, it was more like modern day Georgia and Florida. So this might be a species that does prefer somewhat warmer climates yeah. than the modern turtles. And the other one, and this is just a cool, this is super fun. The paper notes that today, Chrysomys picta, the common painted turtle, is widespread across the United States and typically is the most abundant turtle species in its habitats. If yeah. you find painted turtles, they are going to be the most common ones you find. Yeah, dominant there. Except where their habitats overlap with red-eared sliders, Trachomys um... scripta, in those cases, the slider turtles tend to be more common and the painted turtles tend to be less abundant, and they tend to separate out their niches with the painted turtles hanging out in the shallows and the sliders being more common in the deeper waters. Oh, okay. And wouldn't you know it, can you guess what by far the most common turtle species is at the Gray Fossil Site? <laughs> Slider turtles. Yeah. Trachomys hogridae, the other turtle species that Steve named. And I happen to know because our buddy Sean, who that species is named after, has been doing some study recently on the distribution of different fossils on the site. That our painted turtle, and this is not in the paper, so this is not officially published. This is more, this is not peer-reviewed data. Yeah, we are currently finding this out, potentially. That it seems that our painted turtles occur along the borders of the ancient pond, whereas the sliders are more common everywhere else. 
So it looks like these ancient species of painted and slider turtles have the same relationship and niche partitioning as modern species of painted and slider turtles. That's very cool. Which is so cool. Man, see, now I want to know what makes them prone to separate out into those niches. I didn't see that in the paper. Uh, slider turtles tend to be bigger. Yeah. So I wonder if it's just that they're competing for the same resources. Yeah. And painted turtles are able to do that, except when there's bigger sliders around yeah. who are well, kind of pushing them out of the way. When I wonder like, if being bigger means deep water is easier slightly. Right. And if you're smaller, you can be a little bit better around the, the reeds and the plants at the right. edge. Or if it's that because they're bigger, the shallow water is the only place that the painted turtles can really get a foothold. Yes. Without being elbowed out by the other turtles. Yeah. And then the snappers are down at the bottom. Yep, yep. Just doing their own thing. <laughs> Nobody messes with them. No. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, way to go, Steve. Yeah. That is, this is our third new turtle species at the Gray Fossil Site. Oh, right, it is. Uh, before this was the slider. And then the first one was Old Stinky. Yes. Our musk turtle. The musk turtle. I forgot that was a new species. And there should be more. Oh, yes. Uh, and, like, I have talked to Steve, and Steve has looked at some of the other turtles and is planning, our, or in the process of, I think, working on other turtles that will likely also end up being new species. That's very often the the sequence of events at the Gray Fossil Site, is we find something that is recognizable. Yep. Turtle. Yeah, turtle. And even potentially this group of turtles. Mm -hmm. Uh, or this group of whatever animal, and we can ID it that way, but then once we actually do a detailed study of it, realize no, it's slightly different because, yeah, we're digging in a place at a time that you don't get for this place. Yes. So, so a lot of the stuff here is slightly different. Yeah. Almost everything at the Gray Fossil Site that has been identified down to species level is a new species. Which, is, which can seem weird until you put it in context that we're... We've never gotten to get a snapshot yeah. of this the, age in this area before. Almost the entire southeastern United States is a blank spot yes. for the early Pliocene. So as we are looking at a place no one's ever looked at. Well, my first bit of news, I don't have a good segue to it, but it is still very cool. It is about early herbivorous dinosaurs and a study mm. that found that they developed distinct ways to eat plants. Okay. Even though they all looked very similar during their early evolution. Mm. Yeah. This is research by David Button et al. in Current Biology, and the article is a press release on phys.org from the University of Bristol. So this study was looking at early herbivorous dinosaurs, basically the early members that started the branches that would become the main groups of plant-eating dinosaurs. Right, the earliest ancestors of your horned dinosaurs mm -hmm. and your duckbills and things like that. So during this time, they had not become significantly distinct from each other like they will be. The horned dinosaurs were not super horned yet and so right. forth. So they all looked fairly similar and even many were fairly similar in size. And this research was looking at, were they all eating plants the same way? And part of the reason they were asking this question, uh, the abstract starts with this, was prompted by the idea of, is evolution fundamentally unpredictable? Or are there predictable patterns? Mm, were there signs already in those earliest members of these lineages of what they would become? Yes. And also, is there a predictable pattern to how one evolves to eat plants? Ah. Yeah. Are, were they following the same playbook to start eating plants? Because the earliest dinosaurs were carnivorous. Yes. So 
these all had to come from groups that were newly starting to be herbivorous. So were they all using the same playbook, or is evolution inherently unpredictable? Are there multiple ways to skin a bush? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) To prune. There you go. So they looked at four groups. They CT'd the skulls of five members of four major groups. Heterodontosaurids with Heterodontosaurus. The Thyreophorans with Lesothosaurus and Skeletosaurus. The Ornithopods with Hypsilophodon and your Ceratopsians with Psittacosaurus. And so as you're saying, each of these go on to be part of the lineage that gives us the Ceratopsians, the horned dinosaurs. Yeah, and the Ornithopods are your Hadrosaurs, yep, your yep. duckbill things. Your Thyreophorans are your Stegosaurs and Ankylosaurs, those big famous groups of herbivores. Using these scans, they looked at where the jaw muscles would have likely been, what size and shape they would have been. They did this using data from birds and crocodilians today, the current archosaurs, relatives of dinosaurs, to try to interpret from the shape of the skull and where we see where the attachments would be, what would the musculature have been like. And then using that and the shape of the jaw, what sort of bite force could we expect? Okay. So this way they were able to simulate the bite of the animals on an imaginary object. You know, mm-hmm. they were able to simulate it like on a, something. A digital food. Yes, exactly. And figure out how much force could they apply, but also what stresses were they experiencing while that force is applied. So how efficiently were they applying the force? Were they being put under lots of strain to hit high forces or relatively little strain to hit that high force? Mm -hmm. And what they found was a different pattern for each group. The heterodontosaurs had large jaw muscles relative to their skull size, relative to their head, which gave them strong bites. Big muscles, big bites, ideal for tough food. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. The Thyreophorans had a similar bite force to the heterodontosaurs, but smaller jaw muscles comparatively to their their overall size, but they themselves were much bigger. Mm. So they were able to hit that force just because they had a bigger body. They were just bigger. So they could still eat similarly tough plants. The Hypsilophodonts didn't have large muscles, but they had reorientated the muscles, repositioned them to be more efficient so that they could use less muscle to produce a decent amount of force. And then the Ceratopsians combined these approaches for their own form of, of biting. So as they put, they found multiple solutions to an equivalent problem. So it doesn't seem like there is any distinct pattern to how one prunes a bush. Right, that they you can come at this from many different angles, that these different lineages started out on their own herbivorous paths. Yes, and this was early on. You know, mm-hmm. this is the, some of the earliest members of these groups and would not have looked super crazy distinct like their later ancestors or their later right. descendants. So even though they were early and more similar in size, they were very different in how they were biting their plants. Yeah. It's interesting not only to sort of see different evolutionary options that are available to animals doing similar things, but also because there's always these questions when we look at the evolution of a particular group of what is the order of the evolution of features. Mm -hmm. As we've discussed before, the whole body does not evolve at the same rate in the same, you know, quote, direction. Yes. That here were a bunch of animals that 
had a very similar body plan and may have been moving in very similar ways or living in similar places or, you know, their body shape was very similar, but already their mouths were doing different things. Yes. Which very likely supported them in the differing directions they eventually went on to. Yeah, and I think one of the most interesting parts of me is that it doesn't necessarily seem like they were doing different things in the mouth because they were doing slightly different things, but that they may have been solving the exact same problem almost. Right. They might not have been eating drastically different foods, for example. But they just all came to the answer in a different evolutionary way, which they emphasized probably means, yeah, evolution does not have a predictable path. It, It is a very distinct thing most oftentimes that there's a lot of ways to get to the same answer. Mm-hmm. And as we see in the later lives, l- later evolutions of these groups, all can be successful. Yes. And that, it does make me wonder how they might have been using their jaws differently. Oh, yeah. Were they moving their jaws differently? Yeah. Were, Were they, they chewing just, it in a different there way? There could have been all sorts of neat little subtle differences. Absolutely. Very cool stuff. Well, my next bit of news has nothing to do with any of that. Uh, well, it's evolutionary trends over time. That's a very broad topic. This is about <laughs> brains, specifically Ooh. our brains. My brain? Me and Will. My and Will's brains. And also your brain, dear listener. Uh, this is research on primate brain and brain shape evolution by Gabrielle Sansalone et al. in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. And we will link to an article in the conversation which, as longtime listeners know, is a website where scientific authors get to write their own popular article. Uh, so this one was written by Stephen Rowe, Gabrielle Sansalone, and Pascal Raya. Brain evolution is a fun topic. Uh, we did a whole brains episode, episode 121. And it's especially important for us humans because we fancy ourselves a special-brained kind of species. Human brains are famously very large for our body size and highly capable. Like, our brains can do a lot of stuff. It is what allows us to do all the things that humans do, like recording podcasts and talking to each other. (laughs) Our brain, uh, like all mammal brains, consists of multiple cortical regions, or lobes, the frontal, parietal, temporal, and occipital lobes of the bulk of our brain, which all have different functions. Yes. Different things that our bodies have to do are centralized oftentimes in different parts of the brain. Again, episode 121. Yeah, those sections are specialized. There has long been the idea in science that different regions of the brain evolve independently. That what happened, the frontal lobe is making changes and the occipital lobe is changing and they're not really having to do with each other. But there has been some study that has suggested that not only do different parts of the brain work together, which we know that to be true, but that they might change together over time. That the changes that happen in one lobe might affect and and influence changes that happen in another lobe. In this study, they wanted to see, all right, well, let's see how much of that we can identify. So they analyzed the brain shapes in a variety of different primates to see how they change over time. And they specifically looked at two different styles of change. They looked at evolutionary change, So from ancestors to descendants over geologic time and ontogenetic change from young to adult over the life of an individual. Right, right. For ontogeny, they looked at CT scans of brains in humans and other living great apes. So chimps, gorillas, things like that at various life stages, baby all the way up to adults. To study evolutionary trends, they looked at the brain case shape 
in 148 living primate species and six fossil hominins. So that's along our ancient lineage. And this, uh, they compared them, you'll enjoy this, with 3D geometric morphometrics nice. of the endocasts of the shape of the brain to see how they changed geologically. Yeah. And here are the interesting things that they found. In terms of ontogeny, great apes tend to have high levels of integration, which is to say different regions of the brain change together. Okay. Changes in this lobe affect what's going on in this lobe. They're, they're changing in a very integrated way until they reach adulthood. And once apes reach adulthood, that integration drops off. They aren't quite as linked to each other in terms of how they're changing over time anymore. Right, right, right. Except humans. In humans, we maintain that integrated pattern of change into adulthood. Interesting. This is notable, one, because this is a, a feature we've talked about on the podcast before, pedamorphosis. Yep. Which is an evolutionary trend where certain lineages will hang on to juvenile characteristics. In the conversation article, they refer to Peter Pan syndrome. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which I... Yeah, it, pedamorphosis, yes. the evolutionary trend. Um, but they also make the note that this is interesting because in apes, and this is true for humans as well, early life stages notably have greater capacity for learning. Absolutely. right. We, you, you know this with humans where young children and babies are extraordinarily good at picking up and learning information and learning languages and learning patterns and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. Better than adults are. It's it's a, a, a little kid can learn a language by accident. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and this is true for a lot of apes. And it is very possible that holding on to certain juvenile features of the brain into adulthood is part of what allows humans to be such brainy adults. Yeah, yeah. That we are still using our brains in a more similar way to young apes. Yes. And then evolutionarily, looking at changes across the phylogenetic tree, the evolutionary family tree, they found also that over time, humans, homo sapiens, show strong integration, right? United changes across the brain compared to other primates, especially in the parietal and frontal lobes. And that this same pattern was also seen in Neanderthals. Ooh. That they also showed similar changes over evolutionary time, this similar pattern of different regions of the brain changing together in Neanderthals. Which means not only is this a feature that might be linked to our Homo sapiens, you know, advanced cognitive powers that we're so proud of, but also that this is yet another thing that we may have shared with Neanderthals, our sister species. Which makes tons of sense. Like, we just keep discovering over and over again that Neanderthals were humans. Right. They were basically the people just like the rest of us. Yep. Slightly technically different, Mm -hmm. but that you wouldn't... It's very likely you might have struggled to, if there was a living Neanderthal in front of you... Right. You might have struggled to actually be able to figure that out without getting a DNA test. Right. Like you're <laughs> hanging around the water cooler. Like, did you know Dave is a Neanderthal? Like, what? No way. <laughs> or it's a more likely. I did Ancestry.com. I'm a Neanderthal. <laughs> right. And then, Mom, Dad. <laughs> so this is interesting uh, also because it hints at the fact that part of what makes our brain so unique among other primates isn't just the size and shape 
but the way that different parts of the brain are integrated with each other yes. in how they develop and how they grow and how they change over time. And that we share that with Neanderthals. Yes. So all sorts of cool insights. No, it's very interesting. And it is, you know, insightful that your brain is not made out of puzzle pieces. Right. Like separate things that fit together. They are wired together. They are connected. You're, you're utilizing multiple parts of your brains to do single tasks very often. So they can't be just thought of as distinct sections. Right. Even over evolutionary time. Yeah. Which is very cool. That's awesome. Brains are cool. Brains are very cool. Well, you know what's potentially almost as cool as brains, if you ask certain people, I'm sure? Ears. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure there are people out there. People love ears. Yeah. All the ear lovers out there, let us know. Yep. Uh, that was weird. Listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> this. Speaking of lobes. There, we did it. We, brought it, we, we connected it together. There we go. We've integrated it. <laughs> This is research on fossil katydid ears. So like those cousins of grasshoppers. Yeah. Ears on katydids that gave us information of what sounds they were utilizing mm. way back when. This is research by Chungpeng Shu et al. in PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And the article is by Emma Catton in the Natural History Museum News. I have so many questions about this. And the first one is... Katydids have ears? Yeah, they do have ears. Ears on their legs. Oh, I did know that. Which makes sense because they're noisy animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They make tons of noise. So katydids have, their front wings have special raking tools, basically. Uh, These wings are are called tegmina. Each wing has like a comb and a scraper Mm -hmm. for it to rub against each other. And it makes the chirping Katie did noise. Yeah, if you think of crickets and grasshoppers, that chirping noise. That action, by the way, of dragging one thing across the other to make a noise. Here's a vocab word for you. That is called stridulation. It's one of my favorite terms. It's a great term. Because it's also one of my... That's so, that's so cool. Communication through physical noise making. Yes. It's, you're not moving air. You're scraping and you, causing vi- physical vibrations that you way. You have a built-in washboard. Yes. Very cool. And so they make noises with this structure. They're then hearing those noises with specialized ears on their legs that have a like eardrum-like membrane, mm. similar to our ears, that allow them to pick up the sounds. Now, the reason this is so interesting is because because these are all physical parts of the animal that are on their exoskeleton, they're more likely to be able to fossilize. Yeah, I remember several years ago there was a study of a Jurassic fossil Katie did with the stridulating organs. Absolutely. Which allowed researchers to estimate what kind of sounds it would have made. I wrote a blog post about it back when I had my own personal blog. Yep, yep. This is a similar situation, but here they have discovered the earliest example of their tympanal ears. The other half of the equation. Yes. The hearing part. So now they were wanting to see what could, what sounds could they pick up? So what sounds were likely being made? Right. What did your katydid ears hear? Yes. These are Mesozoic katydids. Bush crickets is the common term given to this group. Specifically, they were looking at 24 fossils from China that date to about 160 million years old. Ooh, so also Jurassic. Mm-hmm. Which also makes them the earliest known insect ears. Cool. With this and in this study, they presented a database of stridulatory apparatuses and wing morphology for Mesozoic katydids 
using these fossils as well as others. I think a total of 87 fossils from China, South Africa, and Kyrgyzstan, dating from the Triassic through Middle Jurassic. That is way more catated ears than I expected us to have. Now, this database is for the wings, so we don't... Ah, that, I stand by it. Yes. Oh, yeah. Wings. It's still a bunch. <laughs> so this allowed them to look at the probable singing frequencies. Right, right. And get an idea of what sounds they were making, like the study you mentioned. And they found that there was a high diversity of singing frequencies by the late Triassic. So 200 million years ago, this included frequencies, high frequency calls, and what seems to be acoustic niche partitioning, so different sounds for different groups. Yeah, this is something we'll see still today, that in noisy environments, different noisy animals will zero in on different frequencies so they're not competing with each other, like radio stations. Exactly. The database also seemed to suggest that katydids would have evolved complex communication by the middle Jurassic. And this is where the ear comes in because it seems like their signals should have been able to handle multiple forms of communication and directional hearing. Mm. So that they should have been able to be making complex noises and listen into it precisely. Yeah, yeah, I can tell where this is coming from. So by the Jurassic, surely they should have been able to communicate with all these sounds they're making in detailed, complex ways, which makes them technically the earliest known animals we have evidence for this complex communication, Mm -hmm. because we don't get ears from many others. (laughs) They typically do not fossilize. (laughs) And they also noticed an interesting transition in the katydids through the early to middle Jurassic, where we see a shift in their calls to high-frequency, short-range calls that would have allowed them to communicate over shorter distances very well and would have been above the hearing limit for most Mesozoic animals, which could have been, and is today, a way to avoid predators. Yeah, yeah if the birds, and not back then bats, but, you know, other predators can't hear you, then you are good to go. During this transition where we see these calls come in, we also see a transition in Mesozoic mammals, where mammals' hearing develops during that time. We see a trend in mammals improving their hearing during this same time of the Jurassic, mm. potentially driven part, partially by the katydids getting more high-frequency calls that mammals may have been getting better hearing to try to hunt them. Interesting. Yep. And this has been hypothesized before, but this evidence seems to support that hypothesis further, that there's a connection between katydid and other insect, very likely, communication... Mm in animal hearing evolution. Yeah. So that basically the high-frequency songs of the katydids could have driven better hearing for the mammals, higher-frequency hearing. But also, if the mammal's hearing is getting better, right, it might drive the katydids to get even more high-pitched. got an arms race. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, it makes me wonder how many other insects were shifting their hearing and the noises that they were making and how which groups were the ones that mammals were related to. Yep, yep. Now, like, katydids are a great choice for early mammals to be eating because they are small-ish, but they can get, yeah, a decent size, and they don't fly very... They're typically hanging out down on the ground, hopping around. So that seems like a really good choice. Well, and that's a relationship we see between mammals and katydids today. Like, they are a common prey animal for little insectivorous animals. Yes, and if you're hunting insects... One of the best ways to go after them is if they're making noise, is yep. to listen in. Because otherwise they're tiny and hard to find. Yes. That's very cool. It's also very cool to get both sides of the sound equation, mm-hmm. both the sound making and the hearing, 
because, as we've kind of touched on this with other topics in the past, we can find evidence for an animal that was able to make a certain range of noises, but it's hard to know how many of those noises were actually functional for that animal. Yep. Like, I can make a whole bunch of different noises, but most of the, a lot of them aren't going to mean anything to another person. Yep. It's totally possible for an insect to make higher or lower pitch noises than it's actually using. Absolutely. But if we have the hearing apparatus, we can get a sense. All right, what band of that frequency were they actually using most often? <laughs> it helps us narrow down. And the same thing, like you can hear more frequencies potentially than you're actually than are important to you. Yeah, or that you may even be able to physically make. So we can, if we've got both, we can find the overlap and say, yeah, yeah this is the frequency where they were probably communicating with each other. That gave me the funny thought of like if I was able to somehow make a super high-pitched sound, I wouldn't be able to know if I was making that sound. Yes. Because I wouldn't be able to hear it. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. So and it's, it's just going to get worse as you get older. Oh, yeah. So it's like, I might be able to make sounds that I that are not talk useful. Talk to what Katie did. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to wrap up our news. That's a lot of talking about hearing. It is. So speaking of senses and the v- ways they are used for communication... One very common sense is sight. I've heard of it. And one really great way to, you know, trigger sight is light. That usually that's involved. <laughs> they usually tend to go together. We are masters of the segue. <laughs> After the break, let's talk about bioluminescence and biofluorescence and what those words mean. Luminescence is a term referring to something producing light. Sure. That's if something is luminous, it is glowing in some way. Right. Lamps, suns, things like that. Those are luminous. Fluorescence is a type of luminescence. But for our sakes, bioluminescence and biofluorescence refer to two distinctly different things. And the bio part of that is just that this is when it's happening in organic life. These are two different ways that life, living things, produce light. Which is a fascinating and ridiculous thing that life can do. Oh yeah, it's super weird and actually very, very common. And we'll get into that. But first, to give you what these are and why they are different. Because it's very easy, I feel, to get those terms overlapped. Because they sound similar. Sure, absolutely. (laughs) they are when you look at it, going to look very similar a lot of the time. So it's hard to sometimes distinguish, but they are fundamentally different. Enlighten us. Bioluminescence is producing your own light from yourself. That okay, your you own are body. creating light from scratch. This is what's happening when you think of like a firefly. Mm-hmm. That they have a little light bulb on their butt that glows, that they can turn on and turn off. That's bioluminescence. They're producing their own light. Biofluorescence is when you are hit by one type of light and you produce another kind of light. Right. You're converting light. So you are still glowing, but you're only glowing because you were hit by light. Right. This is, if anybody out there for a a geology bend here, fluorescent minerals will do this. Exactly. You shine a UV light on fluorite and it glows purple or green or something because the UV light, which we can't see, 
is being absorbed by the mineral and then bouncing back as a different part of the of the light spectrum, which is something we can see, which is purple or green or something. Precisely. This is also how like glow in the dark things work. I think not quite. Okay, that is it. That is another thing that is called phosphorescence. Oh, you're right. It is. Yes. Okay. So phosphorescent things absorb light and then put out light at a different frequency, at a different wavelength, but they can continue to do it. Because they are storing some of the energy. Fluorescent things, it is not quite reflecting. Right. But that's how it behaves. It only fluoresces while it is being hit by whatever wavelengths it's using. Right. This is this would be kind of like if you had a mirror where the everything in the mirror was a different color. Exactly. It's accepting the light, it's bouncing it back at you, but it's changing it a little yep. bit. But as soon as you turn the light off, it is no longer producing light. Right. Glow-in-the-dark things continue to produce that light. That's phosphorescence, which I assume we are not talking about yeah. this episode. Because there are no biophosphorescent things. There's no glow-in-the-dark... Organisms. Uh, organisms. The way that, like, a toy glows. Exactly. The There's none that yeah. absorb sunlight during the day and then put it out at night. Interesting. That Evidently, that's not something life has come across. Hmm. Yeah. Get on it, life. Right. I was very surprised about that, considering how common producing light is. <laughs> considering the next hour of discussion. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, bioluminescence is producing light. Biofluorescence is taking light and turning it into a new light. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably one of the most famous animals that does this are the glowing scorpions. Yeah, that was the thought that came yep. into my head. Again, shine a UV light on them yep. and they glow blue or something. Yeah, it's like usually that. like a ghostly green. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Mm-hmm. It's really weird looking. But that is not where their differences end. Bioluminescence is a chemical reaction. A chemical reaction is happening and one of the side effects of that chemical reaction is light is produced. Like a glow stick. Yes, exactly. Right. We'll often call this cold light because it doesn't put out heat like fire does, which also give off light in their chemical reactions. Right, yeah. Fire is also doing light as a chemical reaction, but in addition to heat. But it is putting out a lot of heat. This is a very cold light. It doesn't put out much heat. It is just putting out visible light. Like the continual flame spell. Yes, exactly. Now, the way this, the components of this spell, <laughs> typically there are two things in action here. A substrate, which is called luciferins. There are different kinds of these. These are the molecules that when they are oxidized, one of the things they produce is light. Okay. When they react with oxidative materials, they glow. That's, that's just what happens with that chemical reaction. Different arrangements of these luciferin molecules can produce different colors of light. Oh, cool. So that's how we get the light and how we get different colors of light. These luciferins are catalyzed by an enzyme called luciferase. Sure. And there are different kinds of luciferases. Sure, sure. These are going to affect the rate and intensity of that light reaction. They can also have effect on the color based on their structure, Uh, which we'll talk about a bit later in another group, but these come in different kinds, different catalyst rates, different uses for other molecules. Some of them have to use ADP and energy to Mm. catalyze, and they will use different things to do that, depending on the type. So the main components are luciferins and luciferase, with caveats and different arrangements depending on the group and depending on who's doing it. These are specific molecules whose reactions produce light, and then the enzymes that moderate those reactions. Precisely. That's most bioluminescence. There is something that's recently discovered, something called photoproteins, which kind of skips the luciferase enzyme by making a new molecule 
by combining luciferins and oxygen to make a photoprotein, hmm. which skips the enzyme but is still able to produce light. And this is a fairly recent discovery, so we're still learning about how diverse these are. Interesting. These are not as common, and they still usually need another thing like an ion of calcium or something to produce the light. But there are different systems. Most, though, luciferins and luciferase. So you'll hear those terms come up whenever the discussions of bioluminescence, especially in different groups, is discussed. What luciferin are they using or what luciferase are they using? All of this is happening usually within an organ called a photophore. Right. Photophores are the light-producing organs of bioluminescent animals and organisms. These are a cup shape of cells, usually with a layer of pigment on it. The bioluminescent cells, the photocytes, and then often topped with a lens and maybe even an iris-like structure. I was just, you were describing a cup of cells and I was like, oh, so it's kind of like an eye. Yeah, no. Wow, with a lens over and This everything. is a reverse eye. Instead of receiving light, it is producing it. Produces, it. <laughs> oh, I don't like that. <laughs> these are the eyes that make things seen. Wow. And these can come in you know, by themselves in groups or covering entire organisms. Sure. So these are also quite diverse. Biofluorescence is not a chemical reaction. Is it a physical reaction? This is just physics. Yeah. Well, it's making me think of, we've talked about ways of producing color mm -hmm. in animals, and sometimes it's pigments, which are chemicals. Those are molecules. And sometimes it's the way the light is refracted and reflected in the structure of the skin or feathers or something. Exactly. Which is a physical reaction with the light. Yes. This is a physical reaction. Now, it is still changing the light and it's doing it by absorbing light at one frequency, usually higher frequencies. Mm -hmm. Like ultraviolet. Ultraviolet, blue light. These are very common to cause things to fluoresce. They absorb that high energy light and then emit a lower energy, longer wavelength light. And this can be all sorts of different colors. Both of them come in a variety of colors. Blues and greens are very common, but you can get red fluorescence and oranges and yellows. Mm -hmm. This incidentally, I'm pretty sure is also what fluorescent minerals are yes, doing. Yes, exactly. The same, same basic idea. Yeah. Fluorescence is just the act of absorbing light at one frequency and emitting it at a lower frequency. Right. Or wavelength, longer wavelength. That's all that is. Biofluorescence is just when it happens in organisms. Right, when it happens on a thing that moves. Yep. These can use all sorts of different molecules to Fluoresce, proteins, pigments, metabolites, minerals. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't have to be a single structure. Anything that fluoresces could potentially act as a fluorescing material in an organism. And there are tons of fluorescent minerals. A yep. lot of natural stuff on the planet fluoresces. So, basically, bioluminescence is a chemical reaction that creates light from scratch. Biofluorescence is a way to manipulate light into a new wavelength that that organism is potentially using. I see. And both of these are ridiculously diverse. Oh my gosh, they are so diverse. That was one of the biggest discoveries I made taking notes for this. So many things glow. Way more, whatever you think right now, more than that. <laughs> I found one paper that said that for bioluminescent organisms, they have been found in nearly seven to 800 genera across 13 phyla, giving us a rough number of about 10,000 identified species that create light. or and not the use, fluorescing kind. Yeah, no. Just producing light. Yep. It is 
so common. It is all over the place. It ranges from bacteria to animals. The largest I found for luminous animals is the Donna octopus squid. It's called an octopus squid because it has eight arms as an adult, which is one of the largest mesopelagic squids and can reach lengths of 2.3 meters or seven and a half feet. Ooh. Which it's a makes big it glowing animal. I think our biggest confirmed bioluminescence, at least the biggest I could find yeah. any description of. Cool. Uh, now, all it's going to take for us is to catch a living colossal squid and go, oh, it's glowing. Yep. As yeah, you turn the lights <laughs> off, and then yep. there it is. Which happens all the time. We discover yep. that things glow all the time because they don't glow constantly necessarily. So there's a bunch of situations right. where suddenly someone will go, did that just blink? Right. I. Pretty sure that fish just lit up. And then, yeah, it turns out it is bioluminescent, technically. This is found both on land and in water, but it is extremely common in water. Yeah. It is much more common, and specifically marine habitats. There's almost no freshwater bioluminescent animals. Interesting. Yeah. There is one snail, and that is it. Marine organisms are by far where the majority of bioluminescent life is found, and it is crazy common there. Yeah, and and this is uh, evident to anyone who's ever watched a documentary about, especially the deep sea. Yep. All those different glowing organisms. And we talked about some of those in the deep sea episode. Episode 128. About 80% of bioluminescent animals are found in the ocean. I saw one research that said, about three quarters of individuals in the ocean bioluminesce. Wow. Like, it is it's almost... The, it's the thing to do. It's more common oftentimes than not. Yeah. You're you're the weird one if you can't glow. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so it is super common. In many areas, it's the predominant light, light source in the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> like, once you get deep enough down, more light is coming from animals and organisms... Than it is from the sun. Yeah. It, so it is this, super common. This is very obvious if anyone's ever seen those videos of glowing waves in surf. Yep. That's caused by dinoflagellates, which mm. is a phytoplankton. These are the biggest contributor to bioluminescence in the ocean. Okay. And the only photosynthetic organism to bioluminesce. Mm. Plants don't do it. Plants, plants, listen, plants want the light going one direction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we take it. We do not give. They don't create light. They do fluoresce a whole bunch. Okay. Tons of fluorescent plants. That makes a ton of sense. Absolutely. In fact, chlorophyll fluoresces red as a rule. What? Yeah. So plants fluoresce. Now, whether or not they're all using that right. is extremely up to debate. We'll talk about that a little bit. Sure, sure. But <laughs> chlorophyll fluoresces red. Interesting. Or at least one so, of the things, one of the mechanisms associated with chlorophyll f- fluoresces red. Sure. That, yeah, makes sense. So animals are doing it all over the place. Uh, plants are not bioluminescing. Nope. Which is weird. It's super weird. It's very weird. Not for... a single identified land or water plant. That's very unusual. And then uh, microbes. Yes. As you mentioned. Tons uh, of bacteria. Phytoplankton, bacteria, which uh, just, just to make a little note. Most of those are a cell. Yes. That is a single glowing cell, which is very cool. Which is also another interesting note. Tons of animals bioluminesce, many of which are producing it themselves. Some of which, though, don't produce it themselves, but have a symbiotic relationship with bioluminescent bacteria. Right. They have a little pocket somewhere. Is that what anglerfish do? No, I think Am I wrong about that? Most fish produce their own light. Okay. Yeah. I was very surprised. Most, ang- most fish are producing their own light. 
Lots of squid. Uh, the bobtail squid are famous for having a relationship with symbiotic bioluminescent bacteria. Okay. Though there are inherently bioluminescent cephalopods as well. Right. So squids can do it both ways. Yes. There's both types, likely indicating that they are unrelated origins. Right. So this is the biological version of catching a bunch of fireflies mm-hmm. in a jar and then using that as your light source. Which is what they do. It comes from the environment. The mm-hmm. bacteria comes from the water and then they just house them. So they literally are just catching a bunch of glowing organisms <laughs> and then keeping them alive. They have a little jar built into the body. There's also the option to get glowing material from your prey. Oh. So there's a bunch of non-bioluminescent inherently organisms that bioluminesce because they're getting the tools and the materials from their prey. So they eat glowing things. Yes. Ooh. Yeah. That's so cool. It is super widespread and the ways everyone's doing it can be very, very, very different. Do fireflies produce their own light? They do. Okay. Yep. In, in my head, that was another one that I was like, is that one of those bacterial things? All right. Yeah. Interesting. No, we can learn about what they're going to do glowing-wise via their genome. Oh, very cool. So it is something inherent to them. Biofluorescence is also super common and, kind of interestingly, very common in groups where bioluminescence isn't. Fish are the only bioluminescent vertebrates, so we don't have any bioluminescent mammals, reptiles, birds, amphibians. Right. All of those, though, will fluoresce. Yeah, I remember (laughs) seeing some news recently about some animals that we didn't think fluoresced Mm -hmm. fluoresce. Yeah, that's been happening a lot recently. Like, mammals were thought to be super rare to fluoresce, Mm -hmm. but we keep finding new ones where their fur glows under UV, platypus, uh, flying squirrels. Opossums, so that's monotremes, marsupials, and placentals yeah, have yeah. all been found with it. Wow! And that's not the whole list. That's just some recent big <laughs> that's ones. That's an example of each of those major groups. And they and they fluoresce completely differently. The squirrels were pink. The possums were purple. The platypus was green. <gasps> oh, I want a pink squirrel. Right? That's great. Yep. Only only under UV though. <laughs> right. Listen, I'll install UV right? lights all over the house. <laughs> <laughs> this is found across life and in plants. So. A lot of the groups that we don't find bioluminescence in, you can find fluorescence in. Interesting. Though still, like, fish will also fluoresce. So you can have a bioluminescent fluorescent fish. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's covering all the bases. Oh, yeah. They all glow any way they can glow. Another example of that weird uh, non-overlap was butterflies. Evidently, there's no bioluminescent butterflies. Okay. But they do fluoresce quite often Hmm. and in an interesting way. They use crystal-like structures. They said very similar to our LED technology. Whoa. Yeah. (gasps) I love that. Yep. So even though almost none of them, one of the biggest groups of insects doesn't bioluminesce for some reason. Not only one of the biggest groups of insects, but one of the most overtly showy. Yeah. Groups of that's That's one of the things they're known for is being very colorful and very showy. They don't produce light, but they will redirect it into a new wavelength using LED technology, basically. So all but you've heard it here first, everybody. (laughs) Butterflies are little flying LED screens. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It is but a matter of time before they start having ads. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's probably going to happen. You have to buy premium butterflies. You got to pay for that. Now, there are some examples of seemingly glowing animals that have been ID'd as luminescent and aren't comb jellies with those little like glowy uh, ridges of of fins of their cilia that move them around and there's those little beads of light that move up and down their body Mm -hmm. Uh, that's just refraction 
That's just them bouncing the like and bending it. Yeah. There's no absorption. There's no production. They sure do look like they're lighting up, but they're just bouncing the light back at right. you. They're just reflective. Yep. Hmm. That's it. So they were listed very often as bioluminescent. But it was just a light from the camera or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or the environment huh. just bouncing it back. Which I guess is another important point, that there are some animals and life that are just reflective. Yes. Straight up. Well, that's like the, the eyes of a cat or mm-hmm. something. The tacitum lupitum or whatever that's yep, yep, called. Yep. That's just reflecting light. Yes. You're just it's like a mirror. You're just seeing the light bouncing off of it. And so that's really one of the key differences. Is you, are, you can be shiny and you can be bright by bouncing light or refracting or reflecting it, but you're not actually glowing because the light isn't coming from you. Right. Fluorescence, the light goes into you yes. and then you re-emit it. Return it uh, in a different form. And now that is your light you're putting out that because it's a specific wavelength to whatever is fluorescing. And the bioluminescence, you're just making that light. Yes. So that's why we d- distinguish that. Light is coming out of you somehow. Yes. Now, of course... The biggest question is, what are you doing with this light that is coming out of your body? Yes, I suspect that the answer to that question is another question, which is, what aren't they doing with this light? There's so many purposes. I can already think of a half dozen easy answers. Absolutely. And probably the most clear one, as you mentioned with the butterflies being showy, is communication. Display of some sort. And there's tons of evidence for communication with both bioluminescence and fluorescence. Many fish, both cartilaginous and bony, so sharks and like ray-finned fish, are super fluorescent. And when you put a UV light on them, a new pattern, different to the pattern that we can see, or in line with it, but shining a different color, Mm -hmm. will show up. That seems very much to be potentially display pattern. Like, they, they are very similar to patterns we would consider display patterns right well if you look at a tropical fish and it's got all these cool yellows and blues and blacks and stuff and we see it and we go that's a cool display feature on that fish a lot of fish have that but we can't see it yes usually yep because it's a fluorescent pattern yes exactly these could be for display or identifying others of their kind just for finding mates and so forth probably the most famous form of communication is firefly courtship the flashing synchronized glows of male and female fireflies to find each other and mate that's bioluminescence used for courtship we also have direct evidence of biofluorescence used for courtship in some jumping spiders which have uv patches of scales and the males and females have different patches on different parts that they will flash at each other to get each other's attention and it was confirmed that they were using UV because when UV was removed from the light they were interacting with, they ignored each other. <gasps> oh, so, cool. So if you don't show them in full spectrum, their display doesn't work because they're using UV to signal each other. Yeah, we should specify. So the the light spectrum, uh, different wavelengths, mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. identify, we call them colors. Yes. Because we see them in different colors. This wavelength we see is red. This one we see is blue and so on. Infrared is below red and we can't see it ultraviolet is above violet and we can't see it some other animals can see an infrared or can see an ultraviolet but that light is always there the sunlight includes both infrared and ultraviolet moonlight includes infrared and ultraviolet so you don't necessarily need an ultraviolet like a black light yes 
to get something to fluoresce. That helps us to see it. Yes. Because that's a, a hyper dose of UV. Exactly. But an animal in the moonlight is potentially going to be getting the right light to then fluoresce. Yeah. If they fluoresce under UV, any animal in sunlight is fluorescing. Mm-hmm. You know, if they do fluoresce in UV, we might not notice it because it is being overcome by the other colors we're seeing. So our eyes just aren't specialized to pick up the wavelength they're probably fluorescing. Right. But you will notice that, like, if you put something out in sunlight versus under a lamp, it can sometimes look different because the sunlight is giving you a little extra boost of color with the fluorescence that's coming off of it. Mm. While under a lamp, it might look a little flatter because it's not fluorescing. There's no UV coming from your desk lamp. So it might not be obvious to us that they are fluorescing. The UV makes it obvious because, like you said, super dose of high energy light makes super dose of fluorescence come back. Right. But it is still fluorescing in sunlight. My favorite example I found of glowing used to communicate, potentially, is the Humboldt squid. Okay. So Humboldt squids, large squid. These get to be like two meters, six feet long. Aggressive, predatory, awesome squid. They're, they're super cool. Also extremely social. They hunt in packs and they are moving in groups very often and they are communicating with each other with coordinated flashes of color. Mm-hmm. You know, cephalopods have their chromatophores. They can change the coloration on their skin and the patterns of that coloration very quickly in extremely complex patterns. And they use that to coordinate with each other, to signal to each other, to signal before they attack so that they don't, they get out of each other's way and stuff. But they're also deep sea animals. They spend a lot of their time deep down where those patterns should be invisible in the dark depths of the ocean. Right. Humboldt squid have photophores in their muscle tissue that allow them to do a full body light up, but because it's in the muscles, it backlights the patterns. The audience can't see it, but as soon as you, (laughs) even before you described it, my jaw dropped because I anticipated it. They have backlight. Backlight for the For their color color patterns. patterns. (gasps) That could potentially mean they're communicating with that down at depth. That's so cool. <laughs> How awesome is that? So they, Layered color shows. They have light on the inside that allows organisms to see the color over. Well, it's like putting a filter on a light. Yes, exactly. <gasps> or it's, it's really, it's like shadow puppetry, but with your skin. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Now, tons of deep sea animals use light. And more often than communication, it's probably famous that you think of lures. Yes, anglerfish. Anglerfish, that's the famous one. Anglerfish have that special, it's their dorsal fin that has adapted into this dangly bit. And at the end of the dangle, there's this little glowing bulb Yes, that draws the attention of fish or whatever. And the dangly bulb happens to hang right in front of the anglerfish's mouth. Uh, If you've seen Finding Nemo, this is what they were going for with that animal. Absolutely. So that is a very common, there's tons of glowing predatory fish down in the depths. Another note uh, that I think we should make is that a lot of the time these organisms can turn on and off the glow in specific patterns. Mm -hmm. So it might be a blinking light. It might be, I've seen those like long fish where the light will kind of travel down the body because they're turning on and off the light organs in sequentially. Yes. So it's just a, a pattern of light that goes down the length of the body. Like you're at a casino or something. Absolutely. Which is a light show going it's a on. Disco. And like anglerfish with the lure will still also usually have other bioluminescence on the body yeah. for likely communication with other anglerfish. Again, 
in Finding Nemo yep. when it is revealed the rest of the body lights up. Exactly. Like those lines of light show up along the body. And so, and this can be controlled multiple ways. Uh, the the Donna Squid, I think, has uh, lids that it can put over its oh, photophores. That's so cool. So it can close the oh, light like a sources. Lantern. Yeah, exactly. You can cover a up hooded the lantern. We see lures like this also in glowworms. These are fly larvae that create mucus and and web traps, and then glow to attract flying insects into their sticky trap. So they are also using bioluminescence as a lure. We see biofluorescent anemone with tips of their tentacles will glow, likely to attract prey. And so they will fluoresce blue light to make them a little bit more enticing. Also on a quick side note, there was one documentation I found of a biofluorescent anglerfish, a football fish, the Pacific football fish, that seemed to have fluorescence, likely fluorescing off of its own bioluminescence. I was wondering if there were animals that were doing stuff like that. Yeah, there's a number of examples. That's awesome. That you produce your own light, and then you use fluorescence to change it into a different wavelength of light than what you're producing. So you get two in one. Yeah. You can produce two different. That's so cool. Yep. That's actually surprisingly, like, there's a number of examples, so it is... Yeah, that that is, in a way, not surprising. Because, yeah, if you can, why not? Another form of lure, potentially, is for attracting help. That's been suggested for plant biofluorescence, that they may glow because flowers have been found to have lots of fluorescent parts. Uh, To, like, attract pollinators. Pollinators. Mm -hmm. Or seed dispersers, potentially. Yeah. This has been debated. This was suggested, and it seems to make sense, but some studies have come back and said that, yeah, but the fluorescence of the flowers is really inefficient, like less than a percentage of the total light coming off. Like, it will be so oversaturated by light reflected off the flower that it's basically not doing anything. So it might just be incidental. It might just be incidental. So it it's, doesn't seem like it's a useful glow for a lot of flowers. But it has been suggested numerous times. So there's some support. There's definitely those who seem to support it more. Mm-hmm. But there has been study that has come out with some numbers that seem very unsupportive. This has also been suggested for bioluminescent fungi. Okay. There are glowing mushrooms sure, that absolutely. produce their own light. And it's been suggested that this might be to help spore dispersal. Attract flies. They come and spread your spores. But this also is... I don't think there's any direct evidence of that happening. Right. Like there's no lab evidence or, or documented. Yes, absolutely. The glowing ones are getting more attention or something. And fungal bioluminescence is uh, fairly rare among, there's only really one major group and a couple of others that glow, not widespread. That's interesting because the uh, the concept of glowing fungi, it feels to me like a very famous concept. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, that seems like when fantasy mm-hmm. things want glowing things, it's fungi. Yes. That's often what they end up using. And so it definitely is a real thing, but it's not nearly as common as a fantasy story makes it seem. Interesting. There did seem to be a bit more support for carnivorous plants. That they also fluoresce at the trap site often. Oh, that makes sense. So it very likely might be a glowing indicator for the insect to land here. But the coolest lure I found, by far, is pit viper tails. (gasps) (laughs) I knew you would like this. I repeat. (gasps) (laughs) A lot of pit viper tails are biofluorescent. They glow under UV. Whoa. Yeah. 
This study in 2021 found 22 species of pit viper in eight different genera that have glowing tails under UV. This ranged from a section of the tail to just a couple scales at the end, so it was different amounts. This also included some rattlesnakes where the rattle glows. Interesting. And they suggested that the very likely answer is tail lures. Yeah. Because lots of snakes employ tail lures. You know, they'll wiggle their tail to attract a, a prey... There's the, the spider-tailed viper, which yep. is by far the most the intricate. coolest yeah. version of that ever. <laughs> that has a, a, a blade-scaled tail so that it looks like spider legs. Yeah, and then they wiggle it over the ground yeah. so that it looks like a spider crawling. Super cool. So this is a behavior well known in snakes, vipers and other snakes. And this seems likely that these have glowing tails to enhance the lures. Many of the groups that they found the glowing in also are groups that either that snake employs it or they are in a group that employs tail right, with another species yep. that does that. That's fascinating. This also cycles back to the plants because they noted with rattlesnakes that they that their rattles are distinct, obviously, because it's a rattle. Right, right. They do fluoresce and they noticed when they were observing it that they fluoresced the same color as the grass around them. Oh, huh. and that... When you think of a rattle and look at the flower section of grass where it has those little, they're called spikelets. Yeah. Those dual rows of flowers, they kind of look similar, especially while fluorescing. And if those flowers are being used as a detract, uh, an attractor for seed dispersers like rodents, it might be that the rattle is acting like a fake grass flower to attract rodents, which is rattlesnake's main prey source. My jaw is open again. Right? <laughs> Well, I love the concept that a rattlesnake's tail can be used to either attract or deter. Yes. That this is a, this is a single part of the body that can deliver both the message of come over here or go away. Yep. Depending on what the organism is. Ah, that's so cool. I didn't expect there to be snakes in this episode. Right. <laughs> now, along with luring, there are other hunting techniques that will use light. The Dana octopus squid has bioluminescent pockets on two of its arms that produce blue-green light. And they observe, when they set up a bait station, two interesting behaviors. One was that right before they came in for the final attack, they emitted short, bright flashes from each tentacle. Potentially as a way to blind the prey and you know, mm -hmm. disorient them. A flashbang, basically. Yeah. But also potentially to get range vision on the prey in dark water. Oh. So you flash it at them, disorient them, and you also get a final look for that final strike. Yeah. So that you can be accurate. They also noted that it did some long and short glows while it was coming up to the bait box, which had two lights on it, which could potentially be for a social yeah, interaction. Yeah. Communicate. Yep. That, that octopus squid is coming up and saying, are you going to eat that fish? Yep, yep. It's like, hey, hey, you're new in town. I haven't seen you before. Right. <laughs> Where'd you come from? So You escaped from those humans? Yes, exactly. There's also predatory mimicry among fireflies. Yes. Which is one yes, of my favorites. Yep. That I've heard of. Female fireflies of certain groups will mimic the light patterns of other species of firefly females to attract their males and they eat them when they land. Yes. <laughs> Which is like straight out of Greek mythology. Absolutely. Like that's that's like, an, like an old myth. <laughs> 
of like the beautiful song being yes. sung by the sirens. Yeah. And it lures people in and then they get devoured or whatever. Yep. <laughs> it's real. But my favorite light for hunting is the loose jaw dragonfish. Okay. So many, many fish have ocular or frontal photophores, basically lights, pockets, light organs at the front, usually under or near the eyes that are likely used like headlights. Right. Shining light out so that they can see. You'll see this with lots of deep sea fish. Right. And when they pass each other, it's proper etiquette to turn your light off yeah, yeah, well, so you that have, you're not blinding yeah, the other fish. Gotta put your uh, low beams on. Right. <laughs> now, most of the light produced is blue light. And this is very common in bioluminescence, but also deep sea, that's the only light that makes it down very far because the way water filters sunlight Blue light makes it the farthest. It's the highest energy. It doesn't dissipate as quickly, so it makes it deeper, which means once you get so deep, there are no other light sources. So only blue shows. Everything's going to look a little bit blue. Any other color is going to look black because there's nothing, there's no red, green, or yellow for it to bounce off of, which means fish down there don't have a need to see anything but blue light. So most of them are blind to those other lights. The dragonfish have bioluminescence, blue bioluminescence, like your normal fish, but then they also have red biofluorescence. And they have red ocular photophores to shine red headlights, and they can see red light. So they have a night vision? They have secret flashlights that only they can see. (laughs) (laughs) My mouth is open again. (laughs) Now, we're not positive that they're using that to hunt with because it's very hard to observe behavior at that. Sure, sure. But that sure does seem to be the implication that they have a weight. They have a light source that most other fish in the deep can't detect. So they see no light, but they can see the red light that they're illuminating things with, which means if they illuminate a prey item, that prey item has no clue. They are in a spotlight. Wow. It's insane. <laughs> it is so cool. And once again, they are fluorescing their own luminescence yes. into a secret wavelength that no one else can see. That's awesome. Now, the other flip side to all those examples is defensive. Yes. There's tons of ways to use light to protect yourself. Right, like the Green Lantern. Like the Green Lantern, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Works on everything but yellow bioluminescence. Right, that, that's not going to... That is not going to cut it. Some sort of strange paradox. <laughs> Much like our, we started with communication, one of the f- easiest defenses is just to say, hey, don't eat me by glowing to say you're poisonous or toxic. Or just like colorful yeah. animals often do. This is aposematism. This is putting on a warning display to say, I am unpalatable or don't mess with me for some reason. Yeah, we talked about that a bunch in our mimicry episode. Precisely. We see this with all sorts of luminous organisms. There are sharks that have bioluminescence around the spines on their dorsal spins to highlight, to put a beacon on. Hey, I'm sharp. I'm going to show you from a distance because we're in dark water. Right. This is going to hurt you if you eat me. But so just please skip that part. This is the glowing equivalent of the Jaws theme. Exactly. Don't eat at Joe's. (laughs) There's also bioluminescent millipedes that have cyanide defenses and will glow, it seems, to warn, which seems like that's definitely what it's used for because they are blind. (laughs) <laughs> so it's not, not for them. Not for them. <laughs> wow. We also do see mimicry. There are cockroaches. There are glowing cockroaches. Sure. Which I didn't know was a thing. There are 13 different species of glowing cockroaches, and their bioluminescence is almost identical to toxic click beetles. 
that bioluminesce. Cool. They have the same two little dots on their shoulder region, you know, shoulder on an inside. Bug shoulders. There's also tons of bioluminescent jellies that use it as a way to say, don't eat me, I'm unpalatable. Though there's evidence that this has backfired because it seems leatherback sea turtles will use that bioluminescence to target them. That makes sense. This has also evidently been found with elephant seals tend to hunt in areas with more bioluminescence because they seem to use it to target their prey. Oh, man. So it can backfire. (laughs) There's definitely a downside to having bioluminescence, to having a beacon. And there's some weird, like, ones that it would make sense to do it, but don't. Uh, Fireflies are toxic or, or not poisonous, but distasteful. Yeah. But it doesn't seem that that's what their glowing is warning about. It's likely they are distasteful to help counteract how obvious they are. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Though there may be evolutionary origins that we'll talk about yeah, in the next that, section. Yeah, that was my first yeah. thought. So, mm, yep, yep. More on that. There are also more direct defenses. Uh, lots of marine organisms with bioluminescence will shoot out clouds of glowing mucus or cells. Oh, cool. As like a smoke screen or a distraction or potentially to even get on the predator and make them more conspicuous yeah, to make yeah. them glow. This is seen in things like uh, scale worms, which will shoot out glowing mucus but also will like release parts of their glowing scales as distractions and decoys to hopefully distract the predator wow sending so this is another spell this is fairy fire yes exactly shoot glowing (laughs) stuff on an opponent so that they're more visible so the next the predator next up on the food chain has advantage (laughs) that shark gets an advantage on its bite (laughs) there's a similar thought to that with uh dinoflagellates which have what they call the burglar alarm hypothesis for why they glow the way they do. Many of them will glow when bumped, when disturbed by a potential predator, okay. a grazer, since sure, they are sure. phytoplankton. I, I feel like I've seen this kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like a person is walking through, you know, wading through a pond or something. And they'll and light up and glow. Glowing water around where you walk. Exactly. This is why the waves glow. It's because the waves are disturbing them yeah, yeah. and they light up. It's thought that maybe this might be as a alarm signal to hopefully draw attention of a larger predator that might come get whatever's trying to eat them. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. that Basically, it's, I'm going to scream. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is like, I feel like I've told, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, strangely. Like when my brother used to annoy my sister and my sister would be like, stop it, but loud enough. Yep. Yep. Because she's not talking to my brother. Yes. She's saying loud enough so that a parent will hear it. Yep. Uh, there's a comedian that talked about that his younger brother learned that if he yelled, I can't breathe, uh, <laughs> regardless of what was happening, it would get the parents there to stop whatever. <laughs> and he would get in trouble. Oh, that's a dangerous tactic. <laughs> so he'd grab him by the arm and go, I can't breathe. <laughs> there are also defensive lures, potentially. A lot of fish and sharks that have bioluminescence will have glowing tail tips. Right. As potentially to divert you. Bite over here and then I can get away. Exactly. It's like a glowing eye spot, sort of, that Mm. I'm trying to direct you away from my head. And once again, my favorite of these glowing defenses, these reaction defenses especially, is a marine snail, the yellow-coated clusterwink, which produces bioluminescence when it's disturbed. They said mechanically disturbed, so when it's bumped. Right, not emotionally. Yes, no. When you actually touch it, it will glow, but it glows from inside its body which is underneath the shell okay so it's not glowing on the outside where you'd see it mm-hmm. it's glowing underneath the shell and the shell is opaque and pigmented so it's colored right so it's not like the light's not coming through the shell it is but in a specific way <gasps> the shell selectively diffuses blue green wavelength and actually diffuses the light 
better than the primary source. It's like when you shine a flashlight into a jug of water and it distributes it around the room better. It's like that. What? I'm, <laughs> so I'm, the I'm shell just... <laughs> lights up. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. I didn't know life played with light so much. It's insane. This is so cool. Also, we, we really, to drive this point home, that should just be keeping track of the taxonomic diversity oh, of yeah. all these examples. Oh, yeah. Uh, fish and snails and squids and snakes and j- insects. This is all over the family life tree. Life glows. Of- <laughs> this is just a thing life does yes. on Earth. It's just, they glow. Man, we are missing out. This is one of those things that we, as humans, oh, this yeah. is not part of our realm of life on Mm-mm. Earth. And we are the odd ones out in that regard. And it, it is a shame. Yeah. Now we get into what I think is probably the weirdest use for light, camouflage. 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 Yeah. You can hide with light. It doesn't seem to make sense, but in specific situations, it does. By far the most common way to use light to hide yourself is counter-illumination. Yes. So we've talked about counter-shading mm-hmm. on the podcast before. So counter-shading when your belly is a different color than your top, usually a lighter color than the top in the ocean... It'll help you blend into the background because the light is illuminating your top side and your bottom is in shade. So you kind of just come a gray blur. Right. And if a predator is above you and your top is dark, that'll blend against the dark lower waters. But if a predator is underneath you with the sunlight up there, your light belly will blend in against the sunlight. Things like that. Except if you're underneath, it doesn't really help that well because you'll be a silhouette. That's true. Yeah. Because I always heard that explanation of counter. That makes sense. And it works from the side and it works from the top, but it doesn't work from beneath. Directly underneath, it doesn't quite work. Your white belly doesn't care that it's white because it is now in shadow. Mm. You are a silhouette. You are painfully visible. Right. So there's tons of predators that hunt that way. I go down deep and I look for shadows. Yes. And then I attack you. Which is also how dragonflies do it. Oh, yeah. Because dragonflies are terrors. Yes. (laughs) So there are tons of deep sea fish and organisms that decided, all right, if my problem is that my belly is too dark so I'm standing out, I'll just light it up. Glowing bellies. They have glowing undersides that match the level of sunlight coming through the ocean to whatever depth they're at so that they just disappear into the background light of the surface. That's so cool. And different ones use it to differing mounts. There's some that are surprisingly seamless and others where you're like, all right, you're trying, you're doing pretty well. It's not so bad. There's lots of small organisms that'll fight this by being just transparent, but big organisms, that's hard. So they glow. I saw one paper that said that this solution is nearly ubiquitous in non-transparent mesopelagic species. Whoa. Like, if you're not see-through, you probably have a glowing belly, other than some rare exceptions. Wow. Like, this is super common. Fish, squid, sharks, tons of animals are glowing on the underside. Different ones do it to differing amounts. Uh, There's ones that can change their light very well to match the level of light, so day to night they can adjust. A lot of sharks can't adjust it quickly, so they will have to move up and down the water column. Ooh, to to match the light to them, to their own body. So where you catch them will often determine what type of light they're producing because they'll match the light in whatever habitat they're in. Cool. Another point they made is that it might be hard to match the light from the surface if you can't see your belly. Right. You can't see what light you're producing. Sure. And you may not be able to innately go, well, I'm producing this many lumens. It's like, right. no, you need to look at it. I did see one example of lanternfish where lanternfish have a photophore that points to their eye. 
And it might be a sampling photo for, <gasps> for them to be able to say, okay, I'm this bright right now. And I need to be this bright so I can adjust. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so super common glowing camouflage. There's also evidence for fluorescent camouflage, which hmm. I was not expecting. Because hmm. bioluminescence you can control. Right. You, you turn know, that on and off. You can turn it on and off. You can even control the intensity potentially with the irises structures and so forth. But Biofluorescent, that just happens. If you get hit by light, you are glowing. You don't have a choice in that. Right. Usually. I think there are there are fluorescent chromatophores that you can, like, change the size of on certain organisms. Sure. And you can, like, hide under something yeah. to get out of the light. Like, there's ways to control it. But, like, you're using your fluorescence to camouflage, and I didn't understand how until it was explained. As mentioned earlier, chlorophyll, as a rule, fluoresces red. Mm. which means any aquatic environment with a lot of algae has a background fluorescence of red. Just a, a background radiation. Yes. So there's tons of red fluorescent reef organisms that potentially are hiding in that red fluorescence wow. with their red fluorescent patterning. Yeah, just standard camouflage. Yes, exactly. Just match the color of the surrounding. So it only works in algae areas but that's the same with other camouflage like sandy camouflage only works in the desert yeah doesn't work in the rainforest so it's fluorescent camouflage you're just blending into the fluorescence around you fascinating it's so weird now we could go on and on with examples but I i'd think... love to Let's oh, yeah it. right all right cool <laughs> i was just checking on <laughs> uh, wikipedia down the hall list <laughs> open up the full notes document <laughs> but but i think it's also important to mention that there are tons of examples of biofluorescence and luminescence that we don't know the purposes to. It is actually quite difficult to connect why this thing is glowing to a benefit, you know, like to to what it's doing for that organism, how they're using it. So a lot of times you'll see a glowing thing. You go, why is it glowing? I don't know. Yeah. It's We haven't seen it use it in a way that's clearly benefiting. Right. Well, you like you mentioned with the fungi. Yeah. Where you said that it might be attracting insects to spread spores, but there's no direct evidence of that. And I thought, well, if that's not what it's for... Then what are you using it for? What are you doing? Fungi are very often brought up in that question. And one of the potential answers for some of these is there may not be a purpose. Right. That's just how they're built. Yeah. It's just part of their physical anatomy. Right. They tend to glow. And with bioluminescence even, if there's other reactions you're doing for other purposes mm -hmm. you might just be producing light as a side product yeah like uh, when we uh, our bodies will do a lot of reactions that produce heat yes and obviously there is benefit mm -hmm. to producing heat it keeps us warm but it's easy to imagine situations where like if i'm already overheating or something and then i start digesting or i start exercising that's going to produce heat whether I want that extra heat or not. Exactly. Well, it's like our carbon dioxide we breathe out. It's like, oh, so humans produce carbon dioxide. What are they using that for? Well, what do you mean? No, they, that's just waste. That's just breath poop. We're just, just getting rid of it. It's just a side effect. <laughs> Great. Now that's a phrase that exists on this podcast. <laughs> that's just waste material. <laughs> and so like it's potential that you might just glow by accident. Now, this is often debated because of how often we see bioluminescence and fluorescence show up in different organisms that that seems to suggest there probably is a benefit but it is not always clear and it may not always be the main reason they glow mm -hmm. so there's some debate and there's tons of mystery around many many glowing organisms so there's a lot more glowing organisms than we could even explain because we don't 
know what to explain yet. Yeah. We have not found out the whys behind why that one's lighting up. This came up in one paper that had a whole section on why are there so many bioluminescent subterranean organisms? Oh, <laughs> like worms. Yeah. There's weird. like glowing earthworms. And they're thinking it's likely for defense of when a predator gets close to them. But there's also a pocket gopher that is biofluorescent. So it's like, I, why? Right. How is that helping I, you? There's no light in the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> we and yeah, that's another. Well, it's like we mentioned there are fluorescent minerals. Yeah, there's no benefit to that for the mineral. It's exactly. a mineral. The body, you know, it's like colors. Yes. We very often will look at an animal with a coloration to it and think, oh, it, it's got those cool colors. Sometimes that's just the color it is. That's just the color whatever that part of the body's made out of is. Yeah. And that's just what color it is. So bioluminescence, as crazy and alien as it seems to us humans, glowing and by yourself and whatnot, is super common, but it may not always be as spectacular yeah. as you'd assume it would have to be every well, time. Because it exists on a <laughs> spectrum <laughs> from the really dramatic examples all the way down to really kind of mundane, like barely notice it or only in some situations. Exactly. It, but that I love that one of the takeaways here is that glowing is a thing that by and large life on Earth does. Yes, it is so common. It is. It's awesome. And for the next step, we can start talking about what do we, what info do we have about the history of glowing life on Earth? And it is a mixed bag. Okay. <laughs> but it's interesting. There's some interesting bits to it. I, so I sure hope so. After the break, we'll take a look at the fossil record. Now, the fossil record, I feel like we start second sections like this a lot of the time. Sure. Where we have to kind of like, it, it feels like you're explaining to he, someone that. Here's the thing. Like, hey, so Sparky. We need to talk. Got hit by that car and like. Mm, it's, Actually, it was a witch. Yeah, right. That got Sparky. <laughs> yeah. I, I know the story. <laughs> are you telling me that there aren't very many glowing fossils? No, there's not a lot of glowing fossils. There are fluorescent fossils. Yes, there are. Because they can be mineralized with fluorescent minerals. Yeah, we talked about that news with the mollusk shells that had. Yes. Patterning, which likely matched their pigmentation in life. Right. But probably and they were not glowing that way. Yes, the, the, the <laughs> minerals were fluorescent. And that's very cool, but that's not what this episode's yes. about. Yes. So we do have, we can use fluorescence to study fossils, but we do not often find a lot of fossil record info about biofluorescence or bioluminescence. Bioluminescence is a soft tissue feature. Right. This it's, is it's an organ. Yeah. This is organs or cells. And very much like coloration, yeah. we just don't typically get that preserved. And fluorescence is a... The mechanical feature. Yeah, a, a molecular structure, right. which will often get destroyed during fossilization. Or changed. Yeah, so... Altered. It just will get changed to the point that we can't confirm that you're glowing because you used to glow. You might just be glowing now. Right. So you will hear about, like fluorescent studies, you know, like UV scans of fossils to see how does it fluoresce that might tell us something about the chemicals that have been fossilized in certain ways. Yes. We can get info about potential soft tissue and stuff like that through fluorescent. This is similar to the, the oh, what's the term? The laser. Um, this is very similar to spectroscopy where you're exciting different molecules to get it to glow at different ways right that, which is kind of the same idea as when you do like binding mm -hmm. dye experiments where you like, like dye a, a 
body or something and the dye binds to certain organs. It's all different ways of just saying different materials will give off different colors if we do things to them. So you will hear about fluorescence used in fossils that way, but it's not likely giving us info on that that organism biofluoresced in life. Right. So our info on the direct evidence of glowing in ancient life is pretty limited. We do have, though, some fossils that we can study this with because some organisms do have specific structures for bioluminescence. Fireflies. Yep. They have the lantern, which is they what that section. Butts. Yeah, they have the glow butt. And that is a very distinct feature of this group. They are also by far the most heavily studied glowing organism. That does not surprise yep. me. So they're we, easy to come by. Oh, yeah. And they're also very, like, visual. They're, they're very culturally significant. Yes. Like, they're probably the glowing organism that has shown up most in movies. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and luminous beetles are super common. They are super diverse, yeah. super successful. So we know a lot about them today, and therefore they also have a slightly better fossil record. Still not good, but better than others. Sure. <laughs> and the fact that I found research about them, <laughs> and I didn't find research about any other bioluminescent stuff. For fossils. That doesn't surprise me. So we're going to talk about fireflies. Great. <laughs> <laughs> now, bioluminescent beetles, they are not just fireflies. There are others. These are the most abundant and diverse land bioluminescent organism. Okay. Makes uh, insects, sure. Yep. That's so what they do. They, they do, are they do it best. above water, above sea level. You're going to see beetles being the ones glowing more often than anything else. I do know off the top of my head that fireflies are in the family Lampyridae. Lampyridae. Which, which is a very cool name. That's such a good name. Yep. There's approximately 2,300 species of glowing beetles. So huh. including fireflies and others. Yeah. Tons. So, so fireflies are beetles? Fireflies are beetles. Cool. Yeah. All right. Did not know that. They are in the superfamily Elateroidea, which includes a number of groups. The Elatridae which is click beetles and fire beetles. We mentioned toxic glowing click beetles earlier. These are the ones that if you grab them, they move their thorax and abdomen and go... Sure. They click their bodies back and forth. And it'll make them like hop and bounce. Yeah. Super fun to catch when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, probably super stressful for the animal now that I know, but... Probably. Super fun. You were a monster. Lampyridae, the fireflies. And then Fingotidae, the glowworm beetles. Hmm. Now these show differing amounts of... And differing types of bioluminescence, like click beetles just have two little dots a lot of the time. Fireflies obviously have the abdomen. Some only glow as larvae, like, mm -hmm. like glowworms. Glow yep, that they are famous for glowing as larvae. I don't think a lot of them glow as adults or they don't glow the same way once they're adults. This can be used for courtship, for signaling between individuals of the same species, for luring prey for signaling that they are toxic. Tons of uses across these beetles. So this is not one type of bioluminescence, but it is a single group that has a chunk of animal bioluminescence. And we do see some trends in their biology for those that glow. A lot of them show special modifications to their anatomy for glowing. The soft-bodied back section of the firefly, the lantern, is very particular to their glowing ability. Another common feature in these glowing beetles is what I, what they wrote as extremely modified neotenic females, which retain larva-like features into adulthood. And both of these are physical characteristics mm -hmm. that can potentially be detected in fossils. So 
as far as bioluminescent groups go, this is one of the best ones to give us insights into how their ancestors and extinct lineages might have been glowing, or what the pattern of evolution in their glowing might have taken. We do have fossils of adult fireflies that go back far enough to give us an indication of potentially at least a minimum of how early they likely were glowing. Sure. There are Cretaceous fireflies cool. going back 100 million years that in amber, have, I assume. Yep. Mm-hmm. That have lanterns, that have the structure, so it sure does seem you have the body part to glow. Right. So likely you were glowing. So dinosaurs and uh, early birds could have been chasing fireflies around. Exactly. There was another that was found in 99 million year old amber that ended up being a new family and species which was named Credo Fingotidae, and was you know similar age, also had a lantern structure, so also indicates that, yep, ancestral fireflies going back at least 100 million years likely were glowing. This one, though, also possessed some intriguing characteristics, a combination of features, because there are the soft-bodied glowing beetles and there are the hard-bodied glowing beetles, because, like, click beetles are a bit harder body. Mm-hmm. This one seems to be close to the click beetles, but it had a combination of features of those hard-bodied click beetle characteristics and softer-bodied, more firefly-esque features. Hmm. So this may be a somewhat transitional species between the less luminous and more luminous beetles. It is thought, the common hypothesis is that the earliest glowing beetles were likely using it as a warning sign for their toxicity or their distastefulness makes sense yes so like we mentioned that it doesn't seem that that's what fireflies use it for today even though they do taste bad right it's potentially how it started for fireflies right that that's what your glowing was originally which would make sense that it would evolve as a feature that has traits that make it useful for sending a signal yep that you can flash turn it on and off it can be brightly luminous And then that translates eventually very nicely to communicating with each other. Yep. And it seems likely that when fireflies transitioned to that communication, they left behind the warning signal. Right. We still have beetles that use it as a warning signal, but fireflies seem to have given that up for a purely communicative glow. This is harken back to episode 78, exaptation. Yes. A feature evolved and served this purpose and then was selected for a shift in purpose. Precisely. And there is some support for this pattern of evolution. Based on these fossil ages, it does seem that firefly glowing diversified at least during a time that coincided with some major insectivorous groups like early birds and frogs. Okay. So it does seem that pred- potential predators for them were also doing very well when we see this trait at least becoming common. All right. So there's a potential connector there. There was one study, though, that noted that estimations, you know, so we don't have fossil evidence for it, but when we estimate based off of all of our evolutionary data on fireflies for when the earliest bioluminescence evolved, those dates tend to fall around 160 to 120 million years ago for just beetles in general. And then for flying beetles, fireflies, 150 to 100 million years ago. And a lot of those dates predate the aerial predators, like bats and birds, that we would expect them to be using this against, which seems to suggest that it started as a defense against terrestrial predators. Sure, that makes sense. And then they started flying, and then they started dealing with flying predators. But that it likely started while they were on the ground with terrestrial predators... 
acting as a defense for spiders and lizards and stuff like that. And then they started flying and eventually gave some of them gave up the warning signal to use it for courtship. And then the funnest research I found was one that tried to reproduce what color they might have been glowing. Ooh. Because the luciferins that glowing beetles use are considered to all be identical, that they're using one set of luciferins across okay. all glowing beetles. So that's the same. And that the different colors are being decided, are being affected by differing groups of luciferases. The structure of the catalyst is affecting the color, ranging from green to orange-yellow across beetles. Which means that if we are able to figure out what genome ancestral fireflies likely had, that should give us an indication of what luciferases they would have been producing, which would give us an idea of what color. Yeah. So they looked at 30 species and took their genomes and used ancestral state reconstruction to, to predict what the ancestral genome likely would be, mm-hmm. and it suggested green light. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. So we don't have the genetics of those old beetles, but right. based off of what we'd expect it to be, according to the groups we have today, it seems like likely the first glowing beetles were probably glowing green. Interesting. I don't. I want that to mean something, right? and I know that it might. It might not. I, and I'm sure maybe to someone it does. Right. You Someone's know. like oh, the, the green. That's the answer. <laughs> yep. That's that's like, what my research has been missing. I, it feels so significant. But it's. I just like <laughs> once again. This is just another like happy paleo art. Yes. That like, someone draw Archaeopteryx. Yes. Yeah, chasing around a green glowing Absolutely. little beetle. Next time you do a, a nighttime Cretaceous scene, <laughs> put some glow green lights. <laughs> In the bushes and maybe even in the trees and stuff. Like, that'd be awesome. Now, that was basically all the fossil info I could find. Yeah, I imagine that it's possible for us to find other fossil info, like the organisms that have housing Mm -hmm. or specific structures, like an anglerfish. Yes. I would imagine. I don't know if we have anglerfish fossils. I went looking and I couldn't find any research to discuss it. I found some pictures, but like I couldn't find any discussion of what was preserved. But if you found one with the same dangly Mm -hmm. structure, that would be a good indication. Or a squid that has those little pockets on the arm with a lid or something like that. That's totally possible. Yes. It's just, it doesn't, it's not common. It is Mm -hmm. very rare, and I did not come across much research discussing if we do have other examples. So this is just one where the fossil record is not going to be very helpful to us. It's not on our side in this. But we do still have some insights into the potential evolutionary history for these features. Bioluminescence, there's been tons of discussion as to how do we think it got started and its original purpose and how it got to being used for so many different you know, current purposes. First off, bioluminescence is a fairly energy expensive process. So yeah. highly likely that it is for a purpose. Right. That we all have to pay yes. uh, light bills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's why so, your dad tells you to turn the lights off. This is strongly suggested to many researchers that it likely has at least a significance, but very likely a benefit to life. Right. To that, offset that cost. Exactly. Another thing that supports that there's likely a very high advantage to glowing is the fact that it seems to have shown up so many independent times. Right, that that most life seems to glow. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like we can point to, oh yeah, there's just two times in vertebrates and in, nope, 
it seems that there are tons of times. One paper said 94 potential origins across life. Wow. Just all over the place, different organisms, different lineages coming to bioluminescence on their own, often within a related group. Right. Like multiple origins within bony fish. There are 27 potential independent origins within bony fish alone. So it is very commonly evolved, which suggests that there is a benefit if it's coming up by itself that many times and it's not just being passed down from ancestors. This is also bolstered by the fact that we see different types of luciferins and luciferases. There are at least 11 different types of luciferins that I saw in one study. And that same study took stock of a bunch of bioluminescent life and found 12 distinct groups of luciferases that seem to be grouped specific. Mm-hmm. So like fungal, bacterial, fish, insect. Right. So they're not, they're also living things have also evolved the mechanisms for bioluminescence multiple times in multiple forms. Exactly. They are using different catalysts, different enzymes, and different substrates, which is extremely strong evidence that these are not connected evolution uh, origins. Though sometimes that's less clear than others, because we will find situations where closely related groups are not using the same luciferin, uh, luciferase, and are using different enzymes, which is potentially just strong sign for convergence. Mm Mm-hmm. And we will find times where there are distantly related groups using the same luciferases, which is likely due to dietary acquisition. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, you're picking it up. Yep. From... And then also, it, this this is the part in the evolutionary discussion where I drop the term horizontal gene transfer. Absolutely. Which is just out there messing everything up. Yep. <laughs> so it can often be very tricky to tag down, what's the origin of this enzyme? What's the origin of this right. substrate? Well... They might be kind of sharing and cross-contaminating and pollinating. Right. But it seems like the answer is, at the very least, a bunch. A bunch. Uh, One example of a luciferin, colintrazine, which is the most common luciferin in marine environments, was found in at least nine phyla. Hmm. So So pretty widespread. Pretty widespread. That one is one of the things that prompted the idea of dietary acquisition. Right. (laughs) How is this getting everywhere? How did everyone get this? Yep. And it is found in both luminous and non-luminous animals. So you'll find this luciferin in organisms that don't glow. That aren't using it. Yep. But you can eat them and get it. So it is very easy to get. Now, this led to the question of, okay, but why did it get started with all these groups? And one interesting note of bioluminescence might potentially be the answer for what the origins of, at least in some groups, why they started this chemical reaction, in that bioluminescence always has to use oxygen. Sure. It always reacts with oxygen when it creates light. And oxygen, as we've discussed in previous episodes, it was often considered toxic to much of life. Yes. Episode 75, we talked about the great oxidation event, which was great for us. Yeah. Not great for everybody. And so toxic oxygen can be a real danger, especially in early life history of Earth, mm-hmm. buildups of toxic or reactive oxygens or oxygen uh, uh, molecules could be extremely toxic. This could be produced through metabolism or just from the environment. So getting rid of that reactive oxygen could have been an important defense against oxygen toxicity. Yeah. Bioluminescent reactions, the luciferins, 
react with oxygen, and then that reaction is what puts off light. Right. But maybe the reaction with oxygen was the original important part. Right, that this was an oxygen sponge. Yes, exactly. That was there to soak up the extra oxygen so that it wasn't toxic, and it just so happens that that reaction gives off light. Yeah, exactly. It's it's whenever you do this, a little spark comes off. Okay, whatever, but you got rid of that oxygen. A sign of a healthy bacteria. Yes. They're sparking all the time. Exactly. (laughs) A couple of supporting points for this is that that we find luciferins in both luminous and non-luminous organisms. Right. So there's ones that aren't using it to glow, but they still have it. So... That suggests there's likely an ulterior benefit to just it producing light. And one lab experiment used cholinterazine and introduced it to some cells that they then exposed to oxidative stress. Mm-hmm. And it reduced cell death. Interesting. So it did help so them against help. toxic levels of oxygen. If this is indeed one of the potential origins for this reaction benefiting life, it likely would have come about before photosynthesis was a common was widespread before the great oxidation event when high oxygen levels were just a normal danger that you had to deal with every now and then but then as oxygen levels increased that would have increased the selective pressure for other antioxidant defenses right for different ways to get rid of that extra oxygen which would have taken the pressure off luciferins to be the only defense giving natural selection the opportunity to then use that light for other things. Because now you're not needing that to save their life. You've got other ways to get rid of that oxygen. Right. But now you're still producing that light. So we can use that for stuff. That's a feature here that is open to natural selective pressures. Absolutely. This is mostly based off of bioluminescence in bacteria and fireflies. Sure. But the model potentially could fit many other groups of life. So we don't know that this is how it started. Mm-hmm. It seems very likely, or at least there's tons of support or or... Lots of researchers who seem to think it makes sense for bacteria and fireflies. And if it makes sense for them, it could make sense for basically any of the other bioluminescent organisms out there. Now, as far as when animals first bioluminescing, that is generally agreed that it likely started in the deep ocean, down in the dark, for a couple of reasons. One, that's where we see a ton of bioluminescent animals today. Yep. It is perfect conditions for it to evolve. It's dark. That's where it's very useful. (laughs) Yep. So you need that. It's also very stable. So it Mm. gives you a stable environment to evolve those weird and and very eclectic glowing adaptations. Because luciferins are common in many prey, whether they glow or not, it's very easy to acquire through predation, which might make it even easy to evolve. Because you can get to the materials very, very easily. Laying around all over the place. It's all over. And if it was an oxygen offense, moving down into lower oxygen environments might have taken more pressure off of luciferins and allowed that natural selection of glowing adaptations to evolve more quickly. Yeah. So the deep sea seems likely to be the cradle of animal bioluminescence. And very potentially that bioluminescence was a oxygen defense for life before it was a flashlight. When we could look at fluorescence, we also find a very similar situation where we don't have the fossil record, but it is also almost surely evolved multiple, multiple times. I did not find numbers suggesting how many times it's evolved, but considering that it is not a biological chemical reaction, I would not be surprised at all if it is even easier. Because if you just have a mineral structure or just a protein structure in you that happens to fluoresce, well, you're biofluorescent now. Yep. 
So it is much less picky about the things you need to fluoresce with. Right. And it's much less costly. Yes. It's just a physical structure. But we do see some trends. There are some fluorescent protein groups. Hmm. There are some materials that we see that seem to be very similar or the same across vast groups. The most famous of these are the green fluorescent proteins, GFPs. These emit bright green light. They were first discovered in a hydromedusae, which are cousins of anemones and jellyfish and all those. They've been identified in cnidaria and arthropods and chordates, us bony animals, which suggests that potentially they came, they were present in the last common ancestor for those three groups. Right. Which is very early on. Very early. Very animals. early animals. So that would suggest that this group of fluorescent proteins was ancestral and has been passed down since we see basically identical groupings or types of them across vastly unrelated or distantly related groups. Yeah. This is complicated by the fact that we do not find at least any genetic evidence for GFPs in sponges or nematodes or annelids or mollusks or in chitinerms. Mm, so there's a mixed bag there. Yeah. Of some with it and some without. So that suggests one of two scenarios. Either it was ancestral to basically animals and then was lost, significant gene loss they put, that they would have had to lose those genes to create it in all of those groups. Right. Or it was independently involved in those three groups, but basically identical. And they said that probably means it was gained through diet right. across They're the groups. Picking it up from yes. other organisms. And then it, potential gene transfer through eating things that have that. So we do see some trends. We do see some patterns. It's still unclear exactly what that tells us about the evolutionary origins. Mm -hmm. But there are fluorescent groups. So it's not quite the same as the luciferases. Right. But we do see proteins that you are producing a protein your dna is coded for this protein that will fluoresce and the most common in marine ecosystems are these green fluorescent proteins yeah interesting there are other fluorescent protein families found in other groups other potentially evolutionary lineages of fluorescent proteins yeah so we do see some signs of independent origin that we can track that way uh, but not all things are using fluorescent proteins, so this does not apply to all fluorescent life. There are others using mineral structures or other molecules other than proteins that they produced. So I didn't find a lot of direct discussion as to the split up, but there are similar patterns between bioluminescence and biofluorescence as to you can find luciferase groups and protein families that do indicate some evolutionary lineages and both suggest extremely numerous independent origins. Yeah, which makes total sense given what we learned early on about the diversity yes. of these features. Also similarly to bioluminescence, fluorescence might have been first defensive for some groups hmm. because many corals use fluorescence as UV protection. Oh, yeah. very much like the oxygen. You're absorbing and repurposing a thing yes or absorbing and doing away with it yeah i am taking this high intensity ultraviolet light that is what gives us skin cancer mm -hmm. and gives us sunburn like that's the dangerous part of sunlight i'm taking it and i am downgrading you to a longer wavelength that is harmless yeah so i'm you have a shield exactly it's a uv shield 
and it just so happens to be emitting another wavelength of light. That's how it, that's the side effect of it shielding. Yeah. And then it got used for other purposes. And it still seems to be used that way for many organisms today. They will have those as shields for like stem cells and vulnerable parts that are prone to mutations. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Knowing that the topic of the evolution of bioluminescence and biofluorescence was going to come up in this episode, I was fully prepared to just sort of speculate on what ancient organisms might have been glowing organisms. Oh, yeah. But now, after all this discussion, (laughs) it just seems like the answer is probably most of them. Yeah, that if you had time, if you could time travel back with a UV lamp. (laughs) Yep. Well, like last episode, Eurypterids. Mm -hmm. There are fluorescent scorpions today. Sure, why not fluorescent eurypterids? Yeah, and we don't know why glowing scorpions glow. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, there could be tons of fluorescing ancient life, and it might just be glowing. Yeah. We don't know. I'm sure about, like, nautiluses, oh, like, yeah. ancient nautiloids and ammonites could have done Well, and they did that in mm-hmm. Prehistoric Planet. They had the glowing ammonites. Well, and just think about how much ocean life was counter-illuminated. That we've oh, yeah. never, <gasps> that we've never oh, drawn that way. glowing bellied mosasaurs yes. or something. Yes! <laughs> Oh, oh, I want glowing mosasaurs. <laughs> now, we've never seen it in tetrapods. So that oh, means mosasaurs. That's, that's true. That's true. That's why whales, yep, seals. Yep, yep. This is a fish. Thing. And yeah. they're also big. Yes. Mosasaurs are very big. But so I might be jumping the gun. Placoderms, armored fish. Yeah. For sure. There's also a bunch of like swimming trilobites oh, yeah. and eurypterids and cephalopods. And we see it in an arthropods. Shelled cephalopods. Well, also, you told us about that snail that yeah. shell acts as a filter for the light. Yeah. Why not a cephalopod with a shell that is manipulating the light? Absolutely. Yeah, we've only got one group of, of shelled cephalopods a day. There were tons. Surely yeah. some of them were doing weird stuff. Oh, man. Listeners, please uh, write in with your favorite hypothetical glowing ancient animal. Uh, fan art included will get you extra credit. Yes, and uh, possibly <laughs> we'll share it around. <laughs> Very cool. Well, life seems to glow a whole lot here on Earth. It sure does. And this second section may seem a bit sparse, especially compared to our first section, which was robust. And that is true because our fossil record for it is lacking. But there are other things, other fields of science that have looked at biofluorescence and asked, what can we learn from this? And I found a study that just made me so happy all the way down to my toes. That is potential for using biofluorescence as a way to ID alien life on other planets. Whoa. Hey, we're in astrobiology now. Yep. Episode 26. This is a paper. This is how we get the clicks. Yes. Listen, episode 26 was a big winner for us. Yes, it was. We got to come back to it every now and then. (laughs) Get that SEO going. That's what the studio heads keep saying. (laughs) (laughs) So... Detecting exoplanets, planets outside our solar system, has been a field of astronomy for a long time because it is quite difficult because they are very far away and compared to the stars they are around, itty bitty. And we have multiple. Oh, yes. (laughs) They don't glow like the sun does or the stars do. We've used different techniques looking for dips in the light of stars where the the orbit passes in front between that star and uh, our telescope, which only works if their orbit is on plane to us. Yes. (laughs) So that's a very (laughs) limited number of solar systems we can study that way. This paper asked the question, could we use the biofluorescence of life on a planet to detect that there is life on that planet? They noted 
that all plants fluoresce, chlorophyll fluoresces, and many of them fluoresce more than that, mm-hmm. which gives a background fluorescence to our planet. We can detect it from space. Yeah. Well, and, and even this is pretty intuitive if you think about images from space where you can see the green yes. on the Earth. Like the green color on the, of the like when you look out from space, like, oh yes, that little green and blue planet. Yeah. Well, the green is plants. Absolutely. That's what that is. That's life. So all of that is fluorescing a bit. And we can detect that fluorescence with our tools today. And if there are other planets with similar plant life using similar chlorophyll structures to photosynthesize with, they would be fluorescing in a very similar way, very likely. Mm. So this could be potentially a way to not only detect exoplanets, but specifically ones that have life or the suggestion of life on them. Now, there are some stumbling blocks. Sure. As we mentioned... The fluorescence that comes off plants is not a lot. Right. It is not even enough for a lot of researchers to think that it could be useful for insects, let alone intersolar system. Visible (laughs) across the light years. (laughs) So the fluorescence coming from vegetation causes about 1% to 2% of the overall flux coming off of Earth. Okay. The rest is reflected light just from the sun bouncing off of our surface and all the stuff on our surface, which is not much. They did note. That corals also fluoresce, and they are more efficient than plants, mm-hmm. and they are very common, but they only account for about 0.2% of the ocean floor, and they would account for it less than a percentage of the Earth's flux. Right. So we're talking about less than 3% of the Earth's brightness from fluorescence. From, from biofluorescence, yeah. specifically. So that's not a lot, and currently, that would not be enough to detect, we would not be able to detect Earth right. with our current systems in another solar system. But not all planets are like Earth. Mm-hmm. So they proposed a scenario that might give us the chance to detect biofluorescence on another planet. We would need a planet with high degrees of biofluorescence, right. both common to the life there and that they are fluorescing heavily, right. which needs high input energy light. We need a high energy source of light because that causes higher amounts of fluorescence. Right. Like the UV light. Exactly. Right up against it, you're going to get more glow. So we need to look for our our UV light of the star world. So we need a solar system that revolves around a giant black light. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) These giant black lights are called F-stars. Oh! These stars tend to produce light that is shorter and bluer wavelength than our sun. So these are bluer stars, which means they are higher energy More intense stars. More towards the ultraviolet side of the spectrum. Which would mean they'd be fluorescing that much stronger when they hit fluorescent material, biofluorescent material in this case, which could be enough of an increase that we could detect it. Right. Now, this also comes with some interesting caveats. Sure. They mentioned that there are other stars that would do even better. More massive stars put out even more UV energy. But, and this is an interesting fact for people, bigger stars die quicker. Right. In general, smaller stars live longer, bigger stars die quicker, which is still a long time for a star. But those larger stars likely wouldn't have enough of a main sequence phase, which is the current phase we're in with our sun, to allow for two to four billion years of evolutionary life on a planet. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't have enough time for a life history to evolve on one of those planets to start creating biofluorescence. So those big stars probably won't live long enough to produce the life 
giving planets that we are looking for. The F stars have much longer habitable times, much longer periods where the planet could be in a habitable zone, which it has liquid water and evolve a long life history. Mm -hmm. So that's the other reason they want to go for F stars versus those stronger ones. This also, though, means that planets around these stars would be getting intense amounts of UV. Right. Which could be hazardous to life. But if biofluorescence was indeed a UV defense, Mm -hmm. it could drive the evolution of biofluorescence. Yeah, they could be super glowy. Because they are needing it because their planet is saturated in UV light. So it's just a common defense across the biosphere there. So finding planets around these kinds of stars potentially could give us chances of finding biofluorescent signaled planets that would give us an indication of alien life. Fascinating. With future telescopes. Of course. Yeah, so they put that caveat. (laughs) Right. We can't do that yet because our technology, (laughs) we'd still need to filter out atmospheric interference and filter out the reflection. But according to the model they set up, it is feasible. And with future telescopes with slightly better capabilities and using telescopes on Earth to practice filtering for the biofluorescence, they said it... Their model showed it as a feasible means for detecting life on another planet. That is a fascinating suggestion. Uh, tons of caveats in that. Oh, yes. All of that is assuming an Earth planet. Oh, yeah. That that you have a planet where life evolves on the similar timescale as it does on Earth. Mm-hmm. And life has similarly coated the planet Earth, like it, or the planet like it has on Earth. And also, and I don't know how you would tell the difference between this, a planet that isn't just covered in fluorescing minerals. Yep. Like I don't, I don't know if you can tell the difference between alien plant fluorescence and just like fluorite, yeah, or something like that. And I don't know. So, but yeah, this is a situation. Like you said, we need a rocky planet that is the right distance from the right kind of star that happened to have life evolve on it and yes. happened to be life that evolved similarly to ours. Yes, and happened to ach- achieve both a diversity and an abundance similar to Earth. And I, I stress those caveats. Because it's very important to be clear about, like, we don't actually know that that even exists no. anywhere. Like, this might be impossible that because is, it might not be out there. That is so many assumptions. But also super cool to talk about because the universe is a huge place. Oh, yeah. And maybe there is a planet out there that fluorescence can somehow help us to study it. And just the fact that biofluorescence came up in an exoplanets yep. paper. Yep. That is a very cool interdisciplinary, even if it never goes anywhere, like even if that's an impossibility, that is a very cool interdisciplinary meeting of different scientific principles. Well, I assume that what it would probably end up being more like is when we search for water on every single planetoid. Yes. Is We're going to this moon. We're going to check there's water here. No one suspects that there's going to be water here. None of us, not a single person thinks that we're going to find water. But we're going to look. Right. Point the water detector at it. Point the dowsing rod. Exactly. Let's see what we get. That it's very likely that we will get to a point where we just have the, all right, run the biofluorescence. It's just one of the things that we scan for. It filters the data. It filters the signal. And it goes, nope, I didn't detect biofluorescence. All right. We didn't think you would. Yep. But we're going to run that every time because the one time you do ding. Right. Well, the the time where it's just that one intern who's sitting in the lab at two o'clock in the morning and then that little light starts blinking and they go, 
um, um, <laughs> um, what do we do? <laughs> yep, exactly. Like, it's not likely. And this is just the case of whenever we're searching for light. Yes. No one is ever on pins and needles. I'm going, oh, is this? none of us expect that every time, but we're going to check every time. Absolutely. Because leave no planet unscanned. Yes, exactly. Because that's, if you're searching for life in the universe, that's what you do. So this is a topic that is so cool that it exceeds our own planet's bounds. Well, the thought that settled into my mind when I finished these notes was, while we may lack a lot of info about the history of biofluorescence on life on our planet, it's potential that it could help us in our search for life on other planets. That's cool. Ridiculous. That's like, biofluorescence is such an amazing thing. Science is awesome. Yeah. Science is pretty cool. It's, this, this, this whole episode makes me so happy just because of the diversity of life and that it's such a, it's a thing that we typically consider so weird, but turns out isn't as weird as we think, but is weirder. Yes. It is. Both at the same time. Both at the same time. (laughs) Every now and then we will get messages from people who are like, wow, that ep- that last episode or this episode, I listened to that, and it blew my mind, and my jaw was on the floor, and what s- cool information. And those are always fun messages to get, and we're always very happy yeah. to hear that people are enjoying the episode. It is very rare that I feel that way about an episode, To certainly to the extent that I have felt it this. That first, uh, this episode is so cool. Mm-hmm. My mind is blown. Mm-hmm. I forgot to even mention one of the effects that there was one lab that found that some plants can photosynthesize off of bioluminescence. This hasn't been found in nature, but geraniums can photosynthesize off of blue bioluminescence. What? Yep. What? Yep. That I found a single study, one single lab found that, and they're like, maybe we could use this in like the Arctic. Yeah. Or to continue <laughs> on the theme, other planets. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so I completely you, forgot because I found that like at the end of my note taking. I found that like late last night. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Dear everyone listening, as usual, if you would like for us to talk more about any of the things that we mentioned on this episode, you can always suggest uh, something to us. Also, we do a bunch of interacting with our listeners these days. We do Patreon live streams where our audience has the chance to ask us questions about stuff. We also do Q&As on Discord, mm-hmm. where so far what we've been doing is picking topics that we've talked about on episodes. <laughs> so maybe there will be a bioluminescence and biofluorescence Discord Q&A someday if you have further questions. <laughs> and I'm just going to keep sneaking that into the, the options every time. <laughs> It'll be a fifth one. I, I will never be done talking every about time. it. <laughs> uh, there's also going to be a blog post. Yes. With links and images so that people can dive deeper into the subject if they would like. Oh, such a cool topic. Man, this this topic was so cool and I was so delighted. I, I was so distracted by how cool it was that I forgot to make puns. <laughs> yep, yep. The whole episode. I started <laughs> at the start of this discussion and then I lost it. Yep. I was so excited about the info. That When I was taking the notes, I'd keep hitting moments like that where someone would just be like, oh yeah, and then you know they fluoresce their bioluminescence. And I was like, what's... Why is that not what this entire <laughs> that you can do that? There are there is someone listening out there who studies this and they're just nodding the mm-hmm. whole time. They're like, yep, mm-hmm, yep. Mm-hmm. You guys don't know the half yep, of it. This is what keeps me up at night. And we don't. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> not even close. Oh, I think after all of that amazingness, it is time for our very final section which is our patron question. Oh, hey, yeah, that's a thing that our patrons can do. Absolutely. And this one is a completely different topic, so we can we can decompress 
from all that craziness with something completely different. Our patrons of certain levels can ask us questions that we will answer here on the podcast. And today's question is from... Today's question is from Tobias. And as you mentioned, it has nothing to do. Uh, This is about a group of animals that don't even glow. (laughs) Tobias asks, has there been any research on whether Dinosuchus and friends could death roll? This question made me so happy. This is is a question for Will. Dinosuchus, famously, an ancient absolutely enormous yep. alligator cousin. Yes. So the Dinosuchus and friends, there were a number of super large crocs throughout fossil history. The three that often are cited is Dinosuchus, which is more closely related to alligators. Sarcosuchus, which is not a true crocodile, but is close to true crocodiles. And then Purosaurus, which is a caiman. Like, that's smack dab in the caimans. And these three lived in different places at different times. Yep. Dinosuchus and Sarcosuchus were both Cretaceous, but different parts of the world. Dinosuchus is North American. Sarcosuchus, I believe, is African. Yep, African. And I think uh, some South American remains. Oh, interesting. I found in one paper. And Purosaurus is South American, like, Miocene? Yes. Way more recent. Exactly. But the weirdest thing about that is they all get to basically the same giant size. They're about... 40 feet long total length with six foot, two meter skulls. Yep. Basically all of them. All six foot skulls, all 40 foot bodies. Perhaps the cap of crocodilian size. Yes. And yes, indeed, there has been research into this. There was one paper that looked into this exactly for these three. (laughs) Oh, wow. So the death roll is the sort of colloquial term. I don't know if it's the scientific term. It's the, yeah, it's the term. It's the term. That describes that thing that crocs and gators will do where they will bite onto something and then spin their body over and over to yes. try to tear whatever that thing is off the animal that possesses it. Yep, yep, yep. Or it like is... tear a carcass in half exactly. or something like that. They don't have the shearing teeth or the chewing teeth to be able to bite off a chunk. So they have to rip it off with this twisting motion. It is also sometimes used as a kill move. Uh, sure. There's tons of times where they will have grabbed an animal's leg. And then we'll just start death rolling and just take that leg before the animal's actually done. Mm-hmm. It is There's a reason it's called the death roll. Yeah, it's it is, a very violent and dramatic maneuver. It is extremely aggressive. And that was part of what they're looking for is it is a very physically like it that puts some strains on you to spin your body and your mouth latched onto something. So they looked at could these skulls stand up to the torsional, the twisting stresses of the death roll. And they used modern day skulls because not all crocs use the death roll. Like gharials don't death roll. Right. Because they're catching things they can swallow. Their jaw also would almost surely shatter. Very brittle looking Long, jaws. thin jaws. So there's definitely ones we don't see death rolls in, at least as commonly for sure, and some that don't seem to do it at all. So using that data, they compared to these giants and they found that both Dinosuchus and Purosaurus were certainly capable, whether they did it or not, it's hard to say, mm. but they were sure seemed like they could, while Sarcosuchus probably didn't. Okay, interesting. Probably was a bit too much for Sarcosuchus. Okay. Which is also fitting a lot of researchers these days think that Sarcosuchus is probably a fish specialist, though slender snout crocs are not fish exclusive. Right. That is tend that does tend to be what we think those jaws often are more specialized for. While both Dinosuchus and Purosaurus have Big meaty heads. Great for taking down big prey. Well, those two are also squarely within the diversity of crocodilia and 
death rolling is extremely widespread across crocodilians, so it wouldn't surprise me if the two of them did a death roll every now and then. Oh, yeah. It would make complete, especially because both of them had prey large enough for them to need it. Right. Like, Dinosuchus was almost certainly feeding on dinosaurs. Sure, sure. Probably very large dinosaurs, since crocs often go for large prey. And Perusaurus had all sorts of South American mammals to eat. Yep, yep. So, it, there was plenty of large prey for them to use the death roll on. So, yeah. It does seem likely that they are doing it, minus Sarcosuchus. Sure. And... It makes sense. So if you are hoping to imagine a 40-foot-long alligator doing a death roll, then yeah. Yep. Go right ahead. Because that's what I'm doing right now. (laughs) (laughs) Enjoy. And if we're wrong, then surely Dinosuchus is spinning in its grave. (laughs) So either way, we win. That's a a roll in its death. Right, yes. That's a, a, yeah, it's a, a similar thing. Very cool question, Tobias. Thank you for asking it. Yes, indeed. Thank you to all of our patrons who have submitted questions, all of our patrons who support us, all Mm -hmm. of our people who request episodes, and you, yeah, you, who's listening right now. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope everybody has enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the heck out of it. This was so much fun. This is a great episode. So much fun. Oh, definitely in my top two episodes of 2023. Yep, yep, yep. uh, So far. Yeah, no, this, this one, this one's up there. If you all have any questions, comments, thoughts, you know how to get in contact with us with all the usual ways. Check the links in the description. Check the blog post. There's going to be pictures and tons of links to videos and sources that will have lots of info and images for you to see. Go look at them because these are all glowing things, so they're very cool. Very photogenic. We release episodes every fortnight. Next episode, we will be six years old. That's true. It'll also be our Darwin Day episode. It will. We do this every year where we do something special for Darwin Day, and we're going to do it again. So (laughs) stick around for that. Until then, bye-bye. And uh, some sort of pun about lights and glowing. (laughs) Uh, Put that here. Edit it. Put that in post. Right, right, right. Punchline. Punchline. (laughs) (laughs) If you were a patron, you'd understand that reference. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.